So welcome back to Diaries of the Wild Ones. Once again, a huge thank you to Wild Earth Australia, a company that I'm just so, so thankful for, a company that's all about the adventurous lifestyle. Now, from the bottom of my heart, I really want to thank the team at Wild Earth Australia because I just got back from two weeks of absolutely pushing my body to the limit. First of all, it was training and camping out in Australia's snowies, hitting minus eight, lots of snow, freezing cold, a big backcountry mission to get prepared for then we went to New Zealand where we got choppered in to the Tasman Glacier and Mount Cook National Park. And then we just climbed some solid peaks. So I had the trip planned, but I didn't even know where to start with gear. So I went into the Wild Earth store and the Wild Earth team are just filled with adventure sand lords. So they just had all the knowledge from like what sleeping mat I would need to like what exact layers I would need for New Zealand to keep me comfortable, the type of gloves that would be best for climbing, the alpine climbing gear that I would need, the backpack that fitted my body type the best, what they found most efficient and the most comfortable from their own experiences. So Wild Earth only stocked the best of the best. So I rocked up to the mountains in New Zealand with like all the gear and no idea. And then we just sent it. And I was so happy because I was so comfortable. All the gear went amazing and I'm just so stoked because I was able to maximize the time in the mountains and maximize my fun and adventure basically because I had good gear and everything worked. So I just want to give a big genuine thank you to Wild Earth Australia for having everything I needed. I think the only thing they didn't have in stock at the time was like the Smith Glacier glasses. And then they ordered them in within like two days for me. So I'm a last minute guy. So the range that Wild Earth have just works for me. Yeah, big thank you. So if you guys need any gear for your next adventure, whether it's running, hiking, camping, climbing, you guys name it, these guys have it. Go to wildearth.com.au and put in the 10% discount code MYDIARY. That's wildearth.com.au and the 10% discount code MYDIARY, all one word, capital letters. And also a big thank you to Crescent Head Brewing Co. When you come to our little town of Crescent Head, stop at the local tavern and try either a crisp lager or a fruity XBA. Grab a carton and go sit down the point. Enjoy our beautiful town and its beaches, but please remember to take your garbage with you and watch out for our wildlife. Much love, people. Okay, now this episode, what an adventure. You're about to meet Sarah Davis and you're going to love this woman's fun energy straight away. What an inspiring woman. She's got many adventures under her belt. She's best known for riding across Australia, paddling the Murray River, and then this story that you're about to hear, paddling the River Nile from source to sea. Now, this story is just a great adventure. Enjoy. Okay, I'm ready when you are, Sarah. Yep, all good. Are you comfortable? I am. Are you? As I say, grab cushions if you want more cushions and get oh. it's fluffy cushions and fucking everything here. Well, you live in a great little location because I was just down at your local beach uh, of Maroubra and it was actually like, I've never been there and like I'd only heard the horror stories <laughs> back in the day and it was actually this really nice town with a beautiful beach and um, it's a really nice area and it's kind of like really, really cool to have an excuse to come here and, um, and visit you and, and see this place. But when I was down there, I was looking and, and might have just been the, the perfect conditions that are today, but I was looking, I was like looking at the big surf club and everything and I was thinking like, wow, this like makes sense, like you being from around here that you you know you're this like extreme paddle woman you know that's done these extreme adventures and everything and so um 
I suppose uh, let's uh, intro- introduce you with with that. Who who is Sarah Davis? Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> Holy hell! Um, I am a British-born Australian um, who has been here for close to twenty years now. Very much call this home. Oh, really? Yeah. So, t- t- I, really? So, twenty? How old are you? Oh wait. wait. <laughs> I know I am happy to share I'm 50 now are you really <laughs> okay that's okay I'm happy with that response are you really so you yeah. come over here when you like so I was 31 I was 30 so it's 19 years I've been here I was 31 when I came here yeah well really did you have the adventurous spirit like when you were in England like were you were you out there paddling were you out there doing expeditions did, did that all come from your great move down here it kind of did, but mum really set the foundation for me. She got me trying loads of sports, not in a kind of like being dragged there, kicking and, sh- and screaming, but tried loads of sports growing up and, you know, everything from horse riding, um, ice skating lessons. Then I did all the school sports, windsurfing, water skiing, like, you know, and then it got me curious and, and kind of back myself, even though I was a really sh- super shy kid. But to go and try all these different things and gymnastics and all of, all of that. And then mum also had, and my grandmother actually both loved travel. So yeah. I kind of, you know, mum, when she was in her kind of early 20s, went to South Africa for a couple of years. And and I just used to pour over her, her like photo albums. Wow. And, and it was just, I just wanted to go, go there. And she did six months with a girlfriend traveling around Europe in a time, you know, you're talking about when it wasn't the rite of passage yeah. that it is now. So I think there's a bit of nurture nature in there. And then they would always enjoy, you know, and, and skiing and all of that sort of stuff, like the more adventurous wow. holidays. And then I got more into them here, probably partly because then I had more money and then I found myself sort of single so I could go and do whatever I wanted. So it's just sort of, yeah. it's built and built. Just escalated. So yeah. did you, as a child, did you just have that natural curiosity to just want to explore or just get out there? Or did that just come, come with, with time, with life? I think as a kid, I always, I love being outside. Like I grew up in the countryside and I was a real tomboy, you know, loved horse riding and had my own pony for a couple of years. And yeah, just had that kind of curiosity to, to go in and try new things and and i think i've been able to sort of keep that yeah and what's brilliant about that is to have someone and you you said it to me earlier you can't be what you can't see but to have those like your mother and grandmother or or just you know looking at something to inspire you you know i mean i remember it was just um for me there was a photo at my best mate's house of his dad on a bike on these ranges and i just remember one time like saying like where's that and his dad said to me oh that's me and my brother in our 20s in um, Bolivia we rode through South America and I just that photo just always stuck in my mind like whoa you know this foreign land doing these foreign things you know so so for you like growing getting this inspiration where did it come from from you to to like kind of like take you know the the bull by the horns and like go out and just do it for yourself well, I mean, you know, I've gone on quite a lot of adventurous holidays and they sort of got more and more kind of adventurous. So there was horseback safaris and riding across the desert in Namibia and, and just wanting more. And then I got to this point, like where the Nile trip came from, 
was, you know, life was really good and I had a great job, like best place. I was working at Macquarie in, in risk and project management. Is that Macquarie Bank? Macquarie Bank, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you yeah. Don't, oh, so you're doing risk manage, management yeah. for them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which so usually makes a... people laugh. They're like, um, you, you've gone on these like really risky trips and you're a risk manager, what? Yeah, so you like got this like corporate side playing yeah. this game, yet yeah, under under the, the layer is this um, adventure this woman. Very, exactly, it's like all the different personalities, you know. Yeah. And, and I just got to a point where, you know, I had effectively a blank canvas in front of me, like there was no commitments to to anything um you know single no kids and but just this nagging feeling that this isn't it and it's like you know being the the square peg in the round hole a little bit i love how you said that um you say it in your books i've been reading your book and 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 i told you this morning that i'm just hooked on it and and i've been really liking it paddle the nile and you say yeah right at the start this round peg you know being pushed into a square hole or square peg being pushed into a round hole. And I just, um, I can relate to that so much. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of people can listening to this. It's like even coming down to, to Sydney, I was just in Northern beaches and I just felt like this fish out of water. And sometimes like you, you have this like kind of like societal or cultural or just, um, the friend group you're in or just, just whatever, just this pressure that you have to be someone. Mm-hmm. And I, and you find, I think, you know, I've been through this in my life where you 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 start feeling like that it's not right, and yeah. you don't really know what it is, and it's because you're not doing that full expression of yourself. And so I, I can just relate. It's just mm. like it just doesn't. But where did it come? So you're feeling like this, but did you did you understand it? Did you understand like you you're kind of like not, you know, filling your cup in a way? Yeah, yeah, I did, and I and I just sort of looked, you know, took a moment and and it. It was sort of prompted by I'd come out of a, a year that just left me without going into all the details. It's sort of a bit emotionally bruised and, and kind of like, and I'd had a bout of depression. I was out of that and New Year's Day down at Bondi watching the sun come up and it was just this comment like, this, it's time for change. And the thought of, you know, another 20 years of 48 weeks of work, four weeks of holiday just filled me with horror and it just sort of felt claustrophobic and it's, I've got to find something but it's you know it's so easy to go okay i know this isn't it mm. but i don't know what it is. is it's really hard so there was it was a bit of a journey of sort of self-discovery and i did things like um i always get her name mixed up um danielle laporte so she's got this book the design map and it's about working out how do you want to feel because a lot of the choices we make is like what well, you know if you love surfing Partly because it's how it makes you feel. Mm-hmm. And it's understanding like what are those core, almost like we have our core values. It's like what are our core needs? And then, you know, with the values as well, it starts to become, it may not give us an actual compass to tell us exactly where to go, but it, I found it, it gave me a lens to put things through. So, and just understanding myself a little bit more. And then, you know, I was just reading more and listening to more podcasts and looking at docos. And then I saw a couple of people who'd gone on to expeditions but they were ordinary people like people who hadn't you know been climbing mountains since they could walk kind of thing or the bear grill types which is it was you know I've always read the books about adventurers it just never occurred to me that I could be the adventurer and suddenly there's these people doing it in sports that weren't the natural sports and it was suddenly like well that's it that, that, that's what I want to do and it was like okay this isn't a forever thing okay this isn't my career but 
I want to do this yeah. and, and now's the time. And then it was kind of trying to come up with like, cool, I'm going to go on a big adventure. What's it going to mm. be? I, I love that because, you know, that's something that, you know, it's been, I've heard that come out of a lot of people's mouths like, oh, I'd love to do that, but I'm just not that person. Oh, that's, you know, that's that those people do it because they're that type of person. You know, like you hear that quite a bit in different, in different ways said. And I think that's, like a really good point to get across because even out of like my mates that have done really cool things or incredible things, they're all just normal dudes. They're just someone that like kind of all they did, the only thing that was different is that they had that light bulb moment that where they realized they could do it or they could go for it or that they had to sacrifice and put a plan in place and start working towards something, you know? My mate Haydar Logie in, in Iceland, it just it always resonates with me. He It was the same thing. He was struggling. He was about 19, struggling with um, addiction and, and just who he was and everything. And he just went, you know what? The same thing. He said, I'd love surfing. He just started surfing in Iceland. He was a snowboarder, really good at, at every, kind of everything he touches, this guy. And he said, what do I want, want to be? And he, just, and he said he wrote down this um, step-by-step list of how to get to where he wanted to be and he just said every day he woke up and just did the list and within two years you know he was getting sponsorship offers he became the first pro surfer in iceland you know he just like kind of did it yeah but he just started from nothing and just sat there and went you know what and then he put in that effort so Mm. i was just like whoa you know and like so for for you, sorry, I just went on a little bit of a rant, but it's just like that is there's such a like that is like the core there that yeah. is like the inspiration because that's like what reminds me because like I'm about to do this mountaineering mm-hmm. stuff and I get this self worth, you know, within me like oh am I good enough? Can yeah. I do this? Because I grew up on the Gold Coast, I live in Crescent Head, and like about to go like climb some of the world's biggest mountains. So that's what I want to <laughs> do. But I'm like, and so I get scared, but it's yeah. like. I've got to remind myself like what you just said. It's like, oh no, I can, I can, you can do, do it. it. And, and, and we can. And, and, I, and I think a lot of the time, like for me, I felt like I was possibly listening to a voice that had been whispering to me all along. And I think we've got, you know, like your friend from, from Iceland, kind of knew deep down, mm. but you kind of, and, and again, to your earlier point, the societal norms or the expectations, or I've got to be responsible, or I've got to do this, or this isn't the what people my age or whatever should be doing. And it's like, no, just... Just do it. And even if you don't know how, it doesn't matter. You'll work it out. Like we have mm. Google. Yeah. <laughs> we do. We have Google. We, it's amazing. Yeah. And we've got YouTube videos to learn things. <laughs> it's just, you know, this we're not back in the days of, you know, Burton and Speck when they were trying to, you know, go and find the source of the Nile. And it's like, you, I, don't, you, I don't know how they did that, but we've got a lot less excuses. I mean, Dr. Google did fail me. At points when I was trying to work stuff out for this trip, which was a little bit of a shock. <laughs> so, what do you mean Google doesn't have the answer? What? Like, um, what did we do before Google? <laughs> they were like maps and everything. Yeah. So where did so okay? So you've had this light bulb moment yeah. that like it, it's it's this life that you're living. There's something deeper. There's something more. But you just didn't know what what it is. Where where was this moment that you went, you know what, like other people are going out and being the adventurer. I'm going to be the adventurer. Where did the moment come in where you went, huh, I'll just paddle the longest river in the world. <laughs> where did, where did that moment come in? Well, I started looking, it's like, right. Once I decided, okay, I'm going to go on an expedition and I knew it had to be paddling. Cause I've been paddling. So I started a member of North Bondi surf club and 
joined there 2007 when I moved um, from Melbourne up to Sydney. Through that, got into ski paddling and and that had become my main sport. So I'm like, right, my adventure is definitely going to be water-based. It's going to be paddling. And I had a look to see what hadn't been done because my ego really liked the idea of it being a first. Yeah, which is fair enough. It's just like, it, well, it adds to it. Yeah. It makes you push. push it helps to... with your purpose. You know, it's just, yeah. it's not, it can't be, I think, to go and do something only because it's the first is like, it's a bit extrinsically motivated. You've got to have that intrinsic motivation mm. as, as well, I think. Um, but yeah, I really like that idea. So I had a look and saw, like, has a woman gone around Australia? Yes. Freya Hofmeister had, had done that. And so then um, my, my geography is horrible. So I was like, what's the longest river in the world? Which I didn't know. And it was like, it's the Nile. And I was like, oh, oh well. I love the Nile. Because I love Africa. You know, I've done a lot of trips to Africa. I love it. And and then as I started looking, like, okay, has anyone gone source to sea on this? So source to sea, you mean like starting up where the source of the river actually yeah. starts? Like, wow. Yeah, also, and, and started searching. And it was almost through, you know, through my hands, sort of eyes half shut, sort of going, I really don't want to find that someone's, you know, a woman has done this. And people have done part of, you know, big sections of it, but no one had done, no woman had done source to sea self, self-powered. So I was just like, just got goosebumps. And I was just like, it was just this ultimate aha moment. And I was just like, that's what I'm going to do. Did when, when, when you first like went, oh my God, I'm going to do this. Did, did the thought like of danger pop into your mind or did you just get too excited <laughs> on the thing? Because right now, like I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking the obvious. It's just like, all right, if we're going to paddle through Africa, through anywhere, you're going past dangerous like village you're obviously like a you know a, a western white girl you're going through where there's dangerous animals you know you're going through war-torn countries you're going through like everything harsh environment harsh yeah. climate did that just pop in or was it did... I, I knew you know, yeah obviously I wasn't you know completely naive but then there was an element of backing myself going well I'm a risk manager and I'm a project manager and I I really want to give this a shot and try and work it out and see if I can do this and I knew I'm not reckless I'm not fearless I'm definitely not fearless definitely yeah. not um and I'm not a reckless person so it was going to be a really well thoroughly planned mission yeah and and just to try and find out how and and what's involved and can I do it you know I didn't know to begin with is I don't know is this doable and do I really want to do this and it's like I had a trip um as I mentioned to go horse riding in Namibia so I tacked on um uh, a week up in Uganda to go and have a look at the Nogs it's like I haven't been to any of the countries that the Nile goes through. Yeah, what actual countries does it go through? So, well, the source is a bit debated like it is for a lot of rivers. So some say Burundi, some say Rwanda. In Rwanda, in the Nuengave, I've got that right, um, forest, there is a green sign with yellow writing on that says, this is the source of the Nile. And I'm like, that'll do it for me. Leveson Wood had used that one. And I'm like, it's, yeah. it's good enough. Yeah. And so I was going to start in Rwanda and then it goes through um, Tanzania, Uganda, South Sudan, Sudan, and Egypt. Wow. But I knew, like, because of the political, well, I couldn't say, political situation in South Sudan, I was only ever going to be able to, I'd hoped to do part of it, in the end couldn't, but just because of the unrest and the, the risk there, I, I knew 
in the research running up to it, it's like, you know, I was monitoring the situation, but it was like that was never going to be able to to be able to go through all of that. So it was very much a risk-based so approach. So to do that, then you'd paddle the whole way until Sudan, what then go by car around Sudan. Yeah, so then it was going to like, in. yeah, or fly from, you know, out of Uganda, from skip over South Sudan and then pick it up again in Sudan. Oh, really? So interesting. So where, where do you even, even start? So... You know, you found the source and how to do it. You've you, you're going to when you when you went to like check out the Nile. Yeah. Did it scare you going through villages oh. or just excite you? No, that excited me. Like, as I have, I've been on a few trips to to Africa and was sort of comfortable with that that side of it. What what scared me was I so I did four days of four or five days of whitewater kayaking. So I've never done whitewater before, and I'm. I've had some bad experiences in, in big surf and, and so big water does mm. scare me. And there you've got rapids like the dead Dutchman and you can only, that needs to be Einstein to work out how he got that name. Right. Yeah. Um, so you've got some massive, massive rapids. And then I heard all the stories. They've got the Nile Crocs, which are a, an only slightly smaller cousin to the salties we've got here. So they're big and they're aggressive. And then you've got the hippos and then I and friggin- hippos are like the most aggressive. The, or hideous, <laughs> not hideous. They're kind of cute, but <laughs> yeah, but they but, eat humans. But they they really, really <laughs> aggressive, really aggressive. Yeah, so bears are cute too, but yeah. <laughs> I'm not so going to pat one. So behind bars or glass <laughs> yeah. or something. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So it was a trip that it helped me begin to build a network. It it got me excited and scared. And I think, mm. you know, it's good like to go any, after dreams. Any good dream is, yeah. makes you scared and excited. Then it's like, go do it. Yeah, that's, <laughs> but that is that is the adventure too, is figuring yeah. it out and, and coming across those challenges because you know, like you always know, I, I said to someone yesterday, it's no fun if it just, if you just cruise through, it goes from A, you know, you just go A to B. It's like the adventure <sighs> is like what happens in between. Absolutely. And the obstacles and that's obviously where we grow and that's what makes it exciting. And, and yeah, it's, it's what it's all about. I mean, it took me two years to organize it because there was so wow. much to work out and I was working full time. I did actually drop to four days a week, but you know, I started off by reading some books and someone was mentioned in, in both these books was a guy called Pete Meredith, who's been involved with um, and led a lot of expeditions, river expeditions in, in Africa. So I reached out to him and then he gave me the basics of my, you know, the things to consider, which was then the, the backbones um, sort of of my project plan or the skeleton of the project plan. So then I go, okay, I've got to work out what time of year, what equipment and, you know, and it was just gradually just keep plugging away and plugging away and plugging away yeah. to cut. And then I did another recce actually to Sudan and, and Egypt. He'd on an expedition he'd done um, down the Nile. They'd had a lot of problems when they got to Egypt. All the paperwork was just taken away and they kind of had to reapply. And I just thought, you know, to your earlier point being, you know, white Western women and, and going through um, Muslim countries, I just wasn't sure how much support I would get. And mm. They were just so I decided to do a recce there and just kind of build, start to build some networks locally. And everyone was just, they were amazing. They were so supportive. And I met paddlers there. I met government officials and, and everyone was really lovely in wow. both places. So it just, you know, to then have the networks, because it was all self-organized. It was me going into these countries and doing it. I wanted 
local people with me. It's just a you know a richer experience, and I needed it. Like I don't have the language, I don't know the country, so to get the real again, it was. I mean, part of that is one, it's a greater experience, but then two, from a you know a risk perspective, it was gonna it was gonna help. Was this starting to make you nervous? But if you're you're going for like a world's first something that you know where you're going to be pushing yourself to your limits, and then you're like putting not just so much effort in so many other people coming in you know and it's it's kind of like you're giving them this promise you know what i mean it's like they're, they're helping you and but kind of on the basis that you're going to be doing this like incredible feat did, did that make you like nervous within that two years of like can i actually do this Am oh I actually there was gonna- so much self-doubt and i'm you know I, i'm deliberately made it very public to to create the community accountability and to stop me backing down because i knew i was going to get scared and I knew the fears would come up and all the self-doubt and everything. So it was telling everyone and 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 just continuing to just keep taking action. I just keep taking small steps and, and just doing it anyway. But yeah, I was, you know, the fear of failing, knowing when I went to Africa, I, I did, still didn't have the team for the first section. You know, as much as I tried, I tried advertising for people to join, all sorts of things. So I still didn't have the team. I had a potentially a lead rafting guy because we were going to raft the first section um, sort of up to the border with South Sudan because there was quite a bit of white water, sections of white water. I didn't have all the approvals, but it was just getting to the point that doing it here, doing it remotely was impossible. So it's just like sort of, I'm just going to go and maybe I I can't get it across the line, but I'm, I'm going to give it my, my last shot to try and make this happen. And worst case, I have a holiday in Africa for a few months and then I come back and go, well, you know, at least I tried. Yeah. Wow. It's so, it's, I just, there's so much to, to this. Like how, when you're planning in your planning stage, like how did you plan to actually do it? Like you're saying like you need some people here and there, you know, to kind of help you go through like, how, like what do you need to take like did you work out like are you are you going to be paddling until you know dusk and then setting up camp are you finding places to stay or is there going to be like a lead boat with you at some like like are you yeah like it's, it's a big river and so much and i'm thinking like you know there'll be parts of like the river which would be big and wide yeah. that you know boats could be with you or even like would there be like traders or cargo ships or fishermen so there was a lot more traffic on the on the river once you get to Egypt, um, sort of through. So the rafting through Rwanda, um, Tanzania, Uganda. I was just following kind of what. So this chat I was talking about Pete Meredith things, you know, expeditions that he'd done, and it was just it was the plan was, and what we did was just one raft. I then when I got to <clears throat> Uganda, there's a lot of commercial rafting there. There's fantastic. You go to Ginger, it's like the adventure capital of Uganda or East Africa. Actually, it's it's amazing. It's so much fun there. And so Nile River Explorers said that they would lend me the rafting gear. Three of their guides then said, "Yep, yeah, you know, I, I engaged them to to come on it." And so we had the raft with a frame on it and then had to buy like loads of plastic barrels to put all the food and everything in. But just little things like working out the food. So it's like, okay, four people, potentially no resupply points for four weeks. And it's got to be something that can be cooked really easily. You've got a mix of macros is available in Uganda. Yeah. You know, and it was just you know, was like looking at calorie king. How are we going to make sure we get enough calories in? I'm like, working out spreadsheet-tastic. Like- and then the camping, you know, and I'd never 
sort of running into I'd never wilderness really wilderness camp before so I did a four-day wilderness survival course like there was a lot of courses I did beforehand I did swift water rescue technician knowing that we were going to be dealing with this white water and I don't have experience and while I, I was always going to be the weakest link in, in the raft I wanted to reduce how weak a link <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that was so if someone said throw a throw bag I'd know what they're talking about and would potentially know how to throw a throw bag you know, little things like that. I did Krav Maga training from a self-defense perspective. I did a course of hostile environment awareness training, which is, you know, I had um, someone who ended up, I was then who I had on speaking to every single day, get to that in a set, but he ran me through one sort of political and cultural situations on all the countries, the potential risks, how to manage them. You know, we talked, he told me all about kidnap, the four stages of a kidnap. Like there was just all this stuff that went into it to understand the the risks the and potentially how to reduce and manage the risks as it went through. So there was, uh, this is all like part of that preparation. And was kidnapping like an actual like risk to be? Mm, so very much a- so. So I had someone, um, I was recommended because the, the risk was quite high um, to have have it set up so that we knew who the the negotiator was going to be. <laughs> it's like these crazy conversations that you never expect to have. They said, look, they would obviously be guided by. So Dave, who is mentioned in the book, <laughs> yeah. so I engaged um, him to provide one, provide intel reports every, every day as I went. And there was super detailed intel reports. I would then check in, give him an update on a, like a one to five rating from um, for security, health, mental state, comm situation and supplies. And he's there to deal with any situations that come up. And then he's also uh, an experienced um, kidnap negotiator. So he said, look, have someone lined up so that if it happens, we, there's the person that you're talking to. And they said, ideally, it's you know not a super close family member probably better that it's women generally are often better less likely to to fire if the other person at the end of the phone is going we're gonna cut her hand mm. off or something but i ended up spoke to a friend of mine who i knew would be would be good but it's, a, you know, it's not the kind of conversation you expect to have it's like yeah. so daniel you know i'm doing this <laughs> trip, right yeah this is a risk of kidnap it's like any chance you could be my <laughs> and just and I did you know I really it's like do not feel pressure do not feel pressure. and bless his heart he said Sarah you would have thought about this really carefully if you think I'm the right person then I'll absolutely do it and it's like that's why oh my god <laughs> <laughs> all right let's get the ground rules going so what are we negotiating for here they can look you can lose a hand but if it comes to the foot so there was that and then this team um so david and the the the, the company have a, a cyber security team so they would look at the people um following me on social media to check if there was anyone dodgy and then keeping an eye out on chat rooms and dark web and stuff like that and through the trip we did have people with form for kidnapping talking about me not in a threatening way but obviously when you've got someone who's been involved in kidnapping and they're kind of aware of me and my trip a little bit of a red a red flag so things that I was doing was my um my social media updates would would have at least a two-week delay on them, as in it's not, oh, here I am today at such and such. Mm. It would always be going out slightly late because, of course, everyone knows where I'm going, you know. It's like 
she's following the river. But the only element of surprise I had was was where I was. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I had someone contact me when I was in Sudan, came through on my Facebook page. And I said, to them, I was like, it was just one of the names I was looking out for. I wasn't sure. And he came back and said, no, but that, that chap's um, an ex, it was ex-Libyan militia rebel who had extremist friends in Sudan and Egypt, which is, you know, what I was traveling through. That one put me on edge a little bit, I have to say. What, what did he message you? <laughs> hey. It was, yeah, it was, that was literally that. It was just a hi. Yeah. And so I, I didn't reply and and because and like, Dave, who's this? Is this one? And, you know, they were able to access, you know, to find out the fact that he was able to come back and go, this is who this guy is. It's like, I don't know how they find this information. It was extraordinary. But, you know, again, having that support there was such, you know, one part of the risk management, but it, it gave me confidence because I'm making these decisions. I have never done this before. And, and there were some big calls I was kind of having to make as, as we went. And just having someone there to go, this is what I'm thinking. He'd be like, yeah, go. And I, you know, there are times I was like, am I being too reckless here with some of the things that mm. happened? Should I, I don't know, is, are people going to think I should be stopping now? But I knew Dave would be someone there who would sort of go, if I was being reckless, he would call me on it. So how, how did you like get such a big team together? Okay, it just gradually, you know, it was just understanding what, you know, when I went through sorry, I'm really preaching the whole risk stuff, but you know, I went yeah. through and did what are all the things that could go wrong? And it's a really good way. And I encourage anyone, you know, whether it's expeditions or business or whatever it is, understanding what that worst case was, understanding how likely it potentially is and what the impact was. And if I couldn't estimate that, then I know I've got a knowledge gap and I need to find out more. Mm. And if it comes out as a pretty high, you know, potentially the impact is pretty big, well, you know, am I comfortable with that? Are there ways I can reduce that risk? And and some things like let's have an action plan in case it happens. So unlawful arrest, what's my action plan? And so mm. it created this real boundaries of what I was getting into, which again really helped with overcoming the fears and the self-doubt. It's like, okay, I've gone through this really thoroughly and, and now I've worked out the people that I need. And it's like, I don't know, there aren't, you can't Google the standard operating procedures for an unlawful arrest in Burundi. This is where google failed me um so it's like i need it's it's and it was like that for me that was a big enough risk no not specifically that one although you know it did happen um it's like i i can't put that on my crisis team or on my family to suddenly go sarah's been arrested we don't know what to do you know it's like no i want to have someone in place because the risk to me was high enough for to, to need that there so how long did it did you work out like previously of how long this trip was going to take because it sounds like that you for each stop at each leg or each part you kind of had you had to kind of sit down and work out like kind of like did you like nearly day by day of how yeah. things were going to go i mean i'd worked out uh, you know a lot of it worked out you know the timing and the equipment kind of guesstimated the distances that would be covered and then it was going to be okay breaking it down into sections you know like anything you just break it down into okay let's just focus on i've got a loose plan for the whole thing and i've got my teams kind of there ish ready to go let's execute the first part so let's go from the source and back to ginger and uganda bang okay then we're going to do the rest of uganda bang then i'm going to sort out get to sudan you know have things beginning you know in motion so it wouldn't be starting from scratch when i get there but then okay let's 
get the details now for this because you know again doing it on on my own there was only so much and not living in those countries it was only so much I could do so while the whole thing took me over six months you know that wasn't definitely wasn't six months on the water there was a lot of stop and stop and start and but it was what made it really rewarding like self-organizing it it was I really underestimated how much I would enjoy the journey just getting to the start point it was so rewarding. I mean, it was really frustrating as well at times. Yeah. And it was a lot of work, but it was really, really rewarding. Yeah. Well, it's like anything. It's like that's the reward at the end is like like us as humans like need challenge. It's like we challenge yeah. ourselves. Put it. It's like enjoy the journey. Yeah. You know, the journey, it's like, um, you know, the highs and lows to get the gold. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so like to get this like trip or what you want to do, it's like what's going to feed your soul, you know? Mm. It's like doing something no one's done, doing doing an incredible adventure, doing an incredible expedition. But like, you know, you've you've signed up and you probably already know this, that if you're going to be pushing yourself that hard, plus going through all this, um, all these countries, you're, you're signing yourself up for something that's going to change your life. Yeah. You know, like change who you are as a person. So, um, when when did it come that you knew that it was ready to happen? Like, like had you been training? Like, was your body ready? Where, where, <laughs> did did you set a date? Yeah. So I kept in the run up to it because obviously I told people what's happening, and then people would keep up. When you, what, have you got a date? Have you got a date? Have you got a date? <laughs> and it was really lovely that everyone was so interested. But I was getting to the point of avoiding social events because I was just like I can't. I haven't got an answer, and that would I'd feel bad every time. So then I finally set a date of the. 18th of October 2018 I quite like the symmetry of that one um being slightly obsessed yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great yeah great symmetry <laughs> um and and even when I set that date I wasn't quite sure how I was gonna hit it so then I flew to Uganda end of September <coughs> got there and within <coughs> it it Sorry. actually it felt like you're right <clears throat> I just want to ask a question <laughs> well, I'm choking on the water. It just went down the wrong way. But how how are you funding all this? Did you save your own um, money, or did did you fundraise, or you get some sponsors? Or I'm just asking that for yeah. for people listening, wanting to you know do their own expedition with something so broad like this. Obviously, there's so many different levels. You know, you can go hike across somewhere and not cost you anything. But something mm. like this with there's so many logistics, involved, yeah. yeah. So I did get some sponsors. <laughs> so Shore and Partners um, came on as soon as I, pretty much as soon as I announced. So um, El, the co-CEO from there said, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll get behind this. Uh, but it was mostly self-funded, primarily self-funded. I had a lot of people coming on giving me um, equipment. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, there was quite a lot of equipment donated and there were some other sponsors, but a lot of it was um, self, self-funded. self I did other things because like, having never been married and this being my kind of big big days expedition trip, I um, I set up effectively like a, a gift registry. What was a gift registry? So instead of it being for a wedding, it was for an expedition. Because <laughs> I just thought, you know, and I put it out to friends. It's like, you know, people want wanted they could buy something and see what it was going to be rather than sort of giving 50 bucks which just yeah. feels like that's just a drop in the ocean it's like oh yeah i'm gonna buy the camping stove or i'm gonna buy this so and it was really lovely the fact that and i had a lot of friends i mean some friends did give me cash and mm. large quantities and it just i'm <clears throat> it just blew me away yeah. it really i could not believe that so many of my friends 
um, support was you so, so much. generous, so generous. <laughs> That's what it just it was mm. unreal. Or with the sharing the the networks with me and introducing mm. me to people and trying to help me get the sponsors and everything, it was just amazing. <coughs> God, that water really got me. <laughs> I was just thinking how funny it would be. Like you did this gift registry, and then you set off for the trip and like meet the love of your life and get married. <laughs> And then all your friends are like, oh. Like I'm earning again. Here we go again. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that last gift registry. That was this one. <clears throat> yeah, that's, well, that um, didn't happen. That's a beautiful point there because that's something that I just see again and again. It's like when you go for something, when you're trying to do something for your authentic expression, people just want to help. Yeah. And, you know, it's just like that's just the hospitality and the community comes out, you know, just for anyone. That's like people always have these things. Oh, I was traveling and got to this village and a guy offered me a place for the night. You know, it's just like you're doing something and people just help, you know? Yeah. When there's that passion <laughs> behind that, they can see the mm. excitement. They yeah. can see people mm. want to help you You do that. And, and yeah, the experience with all my, my friends and the sponsors mm. that came on board and then the people I met along the way and had, you know, that experience you just talked about. I had multiple ones like that. Just on amazing kindness of strangers. Yeah. It really was very, yeah, very special. I'm just going to pause for a second. Okay, I just had to pause it because that water <laughs> <coughs> nailed me and I just had to cough it out. <clears throat> Went down the wrong way. <laughs> you just had a sip and I was like, please go down the wrong way. <laughs> 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 and then we just sit here coughing for the next like. Okay, so so you you got your ticket, you got your date. Yep. You know, everything's organized. Do you, do you feel like, is this this moment for you, is it just excitement or is it just ner- like, what are the nerves like? Yeah, I was pretty nervous, like flying, you know, I got to the airport and, and it's like, I've rented out my place, I've packed everything up, I've quit my job, this I've got it. a one-way ticket um, and and then I was on my way and it was just like, this sort of mix of emotions, there's part excitement, there's part nerves. When I flew into, and I was watching some of the videos the other day and, the, you know, the vlogging I was doing as I went and, you know, right as I came in to arrive at Entebbe in Uganda, you know, there's a bit of excitement and then the nerves took over again because I still had stuff to organize and was trying to get the approvals from Rwanda. Mm. But then after three weeks, had the team, had all the kit, um, had arranged a car to take us, had, no, still didn't have the approvals. But we're like, right, we'll drive to Rwanda, we'll go to Kigali. So but... what approvals do you need? So we wanted to, <clears throat> I needed to get approval from the Rwandan Development Board, which is the tourist, tourist board, um, for, for doing this yeah. and and getting um some permits and 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 things and it was just going to really help potentially i could have gone in under the radar i probably could have got yeah. got through it but it's just better to have support and and going through these countries if you've got a piece of paper with an official stamp on it's worth yeah it's worth a lot so i really wanted to have them on on side and on board and then you know something did go wrong also you don't want to blindside them and you then potentially screw it up for the next person coming in behind you as well who wants yeah. to do stuff like this so we went to Kigali and I met had an appointment with the RDB they'd asked me to have a fixer so I'd arranged a fixer someone that they they knew of and put forward Joanne who worked for a tourism company there and yeah got the approvals literally the day before we were due to go to the source so it was just like and I'm being in like the project manager working in, in banks and stuff, like everything's approved months in advance and everything's sorted out and you've got all your sign-offs and this whole, you know, walk in the way will appear. 
was very stressful for me. Mm. I got, I mean, eventually I got, as I sort of gave into it and it's like, and this is just the African way of doing things as well. It's just, it will happen and you've just got to just keep taking steps and it will all come together and it and it did so we then the next day we drove to the the source um there are a lot of issues with cars on the way a lot of obstacles which felt like it was the final test like cars every car we had or driver had a problem like we woke up on the day we were supposed to be going to the source and i got a text from the driver going i've been arrested oh god (laughs) how and the car had been um, taken and so then we were like, poor Joanne is trying to sort out another driver and eventually we, we got to the source and so we walked into the um, into the Nuengo Forest where we had guides to take us in and it was just like the first real special moment was coming around the corner and suddenly this sign which had been on my vision board, this picture of this sign of the source of the Nile was suddenly there in front of me. Wow. And it was just like... Oh my goodness! This is really this is it's actually happening. So I was, you know, there were tears and there were smiles. What did it look? Was it like thick, like forest, or was it? It was a really beautiful forest, like really tall trees. Not it. It was a dense, but not super dense. And you've got there's a lot of trekking and and things through there. There's um, chimpanzee chimpanzee treks and gorilla treks and everything. And it's like there's there's so much to go and do and see in, wow. in Rwanda. So it was really, be- it was a really nice walk. Like it wasn't a super challenging walk. It was mm. about 45 minutes in and then to suddenly get to this sign. And I had, you know, the guys, so the, the Ugandan rafting guides, Peter, Paolo and Koa, and I had the Aussie flag. They had the Ugandan flag. So we took some photos of, of all of us at the source and, and, and then wandered, wandered out. And then put the, well, how did it feel to actually be putting, after all this work the last two years, to finally be putting the kayak, the kayak in the water? It was amazing. So then it was actually the next day. So we, we still had more car problems that night. The car broke down and, and ended up staying at a plantation. Anyway, eventually we did get to, to the um, to the river where, so we were starting at a point where I knew we'd be able to put the raft in. So it needs to be wide enough to put a raft in. And again, it was that moment, you know, up until that point, there was still a lot of apprehension and anxiety and like, what have I forgotten? What have I done? I just sort of felt like, you know, Bridget Jones does adventuring. It's like, I don't, I'm making this mm. stuff. I was, like, <laughs> yeah. I was like, what am I thinking? And then I saw the river and it was just like that moment. It's like all those sort of fears just melted away. It's like, okay, so are you here? Yeah. This is awesome. So we then inflated the raft and put everything on, you know, which I'd never done before. And, and then we, we launched and we had also with us a creek boat. So Co was going to act as a, um, a safety kayaker and to be able to go and check the rapids and see if there were lines that we could go down them. So he sort of launched off on the, on the, on the, um, in the kayak. And then was he going to tell and you I, by radio? No, then paddle back up and, and see us. And we had loads of people around us. So there were loads of the, the locals were all around watching this sort of spectacle. It's like not the kind of thing that you see pretty, pretty often there. Uh, so it was kind of like having this, uh, you know, like launch party there yeah. with us. So then we launched, you know, put the, the raft on the, on the water and I got in and it was the 27th of October. So it was literally having said it was going to be the 18th of October to be on the water on the 27th of October was, you know, sort of surprising as it was rewarding to be that close to, yeah. to my estimate to this date that I'd kind of pulled out of my ass to a certain extent, you know, six months earlier. And yeah, that moment, you know, it was 11.32, paddles hit the water and it was, it was an incredibly rewarding, you know, that whole fulfillment and all those things that we, mm. we, we look for. And I really honestly, and it, it may sound strange, but if it had only been one day, 
it would have been enough yeah, on the water wow. because it's like I got to that start point and and someone had said to me who I had spoken to who's been involved in expeditions and it's like Sarah just getting to the start point is is huge yeah because we well the thing is we all have dreams yeah we all have these dreams and you know how many dreams do we all have that we just don't go for yeah it's like I want to learn a salsa I've never gone on a salsa lesson. It's on my to-do list. You know what I mean? This it's is like, so often it's so easy yeah. for things to just say, oh, next week, next month. And yeah. it's like, so no, to, now. Yeah, to, now. to actually go for it. And and that's the thing. And part of the journey is it's like, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, but you go for it. You, you go try. For it. You give you, it everything. Yeah. Give it everything. Find, you know, what are you capable of? What do you enjoy? And, mm. you know, obviously it, it did last for a, a lot longer than a day. So, and it was, yeah. So is um was it really hot there and like are you worried about like mosquitoes and like you're gonna be on the water or like are you gonna have to cover up? Like is it what's what's the weather? It was really changeable. I mean it was it was warm. Some days were pretty hot and so we would be, you know, using our so we had helmets for the white water section, so we'd be putting our helmets and throwing them over us, also putting it over the raft because if the raft got the air gets too hot, it's likely to split the the raft. Then, you know, then there'd be another day when it would be suddenly rain would come over and, and it was freezing. There was one day we pulled up and as often happened in Rwanda, it's quite dense, very densely populated. So you're never far away from people. And, and we pulled up and it was freezing and we were trying to like have this crowd, you know, claustrophobically close around us trying to set up camp. And we put the, there was this really tall bamboo and put the, the raft leaning against the bamboo to try and create a barrier put our tents up, started, and I was just shivering, shivering, shivering. And, you know, the guys didn't say anything or do anything. And the woman, one of the women was like, is she okay? She looks really cold. And I was like, oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and it was freezing. So it was really variable. It was really variable to, to, to start with. So, okay, so setting setting off that, that first day, you know, paddles in the water, you start you start paddling. But where, where are you off to? Like, I know you're going down river, but, like, what's your – where are you going to stop for that night or the next night? What? How did how did it start? Like, and it's literally it's just then going to a point and going, okay, you know, the, the goal had been to try and find a camp, a place to to camp, an hour before sunset, so that we could have everything, you know, tents up, food cooked before it was dark. Right. So, and you're... it was just going to be wilderness camping. So we were going and, and we knew that was going to be possible so all the way along along the banks you know yes it's it's sort of some it's on farming land but it was going to be okay to to camp but it wasn't always easy to find spots like sometimes you've got thick papyrus and that first night you know it took a long time like bless them all these people who are watching us launch they were running with us for ages it was really it was amazing like the kids screaming and shouting but we wanted to try and get to a point where we could pull up where there weren't too many people and yeah, so it's like that first night sort of pulling up going, okay, you know, I've, yes, I tried my tent, but it was the first time I was going to be sleeping. And yeah. trying to, you know, what do we take off and, and cooking food for the first time. And, you know, it was, there was every day it was first and new stuff. And yeah. Mm. So what were you cooking? <laughs> it wasn't like, the most exciting so there was pasta couscous rice and that would be with either things like pesto jars of pesto um peanut butter would put in mix in that um i discovered that uh pasta and nutella is really nice I really i mean i don't know if it is it is nice when you've been paddling all day and you've been dealing with some really hectic <laughs> situations yeah. it tastes freaking amazing i haven't tried it off river so it was just 
a lot of carbs, a lot of carbs. And then in the mornings I would make up, like once we were underway, make up some oats with peanut butter and I had managed to find some protein powder because it was difficult to take sources of protein. Mm. Um, you know, when you've got four people to feed, you know, um, tins of tuna would take up a ton of space and weight. Yeah. So there wasn't a huge amount. We had lots of biscuits, um, dried fruit, all of that sort of stuff. It wasn't the healthiest of diets. And how's the uh, body feeling? Like when you're you're going, you you know, kind of, I had um one day where my mates got two two hobies with yeah. the um the foot pedals. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And we went for a swim one day. It was a super hot day, and we'd gone all around Ballina from from Lennox, Lennox said so all the way around down Ballina Creek, like just. A, I don't even know how many K probably did like 30 to 40 K like a a big day. And then coming back, I was so chafed. I had to take my pants off. Like I had to take my pants off and just like we're paddling down the river and I'm, I'm just, I had to go naked. I'm like, I've just got to do this. It's just like, there's nothing, you know what I mean? Like it was like, I had that wear and tear on the body, you know, and this is just one day, but you're doing this for, for six months. Like how's your, even like just those first couple of days, just your body getting used to it. Like, how's it? Well, it wasn't too bad the way we were set up. So we had a frame and oars. So the, whoever's on the oars um, is facing forward and kind of, um, you know, one oar would be at the top, one at the bottom. So they were just sort of doing this really rhythmic. They look, the, the guys were amazing when they did it. They just looked so rhythmic and cool and would do it for hours and hours. I only had a few goes on the oars. They were so heavy, so, so heavy. So I was up front with a paddle and we'd kind of, you know, during the day maybe swap sides. So it wasn't because otherwise it's very one-sided when you're just paddling mm. up front on one side. Um, so, it, but it wasn't that super, super hard physically. Physically, it was a lot harder once I got in the kayak and then that was just straight days of, of kayaking all day. Um, it wasn't, it was just awkward sitting on the, on the raft and to begin with, it was okay. Cause you could sort of sit on it like a horse and and paddle which was a bit better but then when we got into croc territory that wasn't such a good idea so it was kind of like keep keep your toes inside the raft and hippos as well well okay so that was my gonna be my next next question you're trying to find places to camp on the side and how we just kind of pictured that there was you know a lot of like villages along the side of the river but are you worried about yeah crocs and hippos being camped like having to camp near the river or do you have to, like, when you're looking for these camp spots, like, how are you you're managing the risk with um with predators? I mean, sometimes you can sort of see if we'd gone up a steep bank, then you're probably a little bit safer. There was one time where we'd we'd literally a hundred meters further um upstream, we'd or downstream, we'd gone past some hippos, and that particular night, we used the throw bags, which is you know bag with a long rope in it. And we found these cow pens, which were kind of like a, a three-quarter fenced patch of ground. And we put our tents inside and then put the throw bags, the ropes around the front just to create a bit of a barrier. While, you know, a 1,500-kilo hippo could quite happily go through that, they're less likely to. They've got quite sensitive skin. They won't. And the rule was once we got into – so it was really day six we got into hippo territory and from that point – and croc territory – from that point on, it's like you don't leave the tent at night. If you need to piss, piss in a pot. Um, it's too dangerous. And there was one night, and the boys were really cute. They would always make sure – was not really cute. They were really lovely and, and caring and looking out for me. They would always um, put their tent pretty close to mine 
just purely from a safety perspective. Um, so there were three of them in one tent and I was in my tent and one night you just sort of hear some of the hippos chomping nearby. Um, so I was like, yeah, don't go out. I was just scared. Are they carrying guns just in case? No, we didn't have guns. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking like, you know, don't in Africa you always have a gun on you just in case? No, I mean, huh? you just, you pretend you're going to create yeah. a hostile situation with humans mm. if you do that and then there's all the legal stuff of like being able to carry a gun and you're not local and i don't know what the rules would have been it would have been yeah probably created more and if you're not a train shot you know it's are you really gonna mm. do anything it's far better to try and take all the avoid the situation as much as possible mm. so the, these these first like weeks like going through like is it just happening to plan like is it just you know, just how, how, no, not no. at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, so the military ages, um, adage is no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And when it comes to expeditions, no plan survives first contact with pretty much anything. Um, so the first few, the first few days were fine. Day six, we got into hippo territory and that was when we, we had our first and the worst hippo attack. So we, the, the river there was relatively narrow. So I don't know, like 50, 70 meters wide, quite very muddy and very windy. And you've got a short, steep bank and then relatively flat land. And then you've got the rolling hills. So Rwanda is known as the land of a thousand hills. But what it meant is you couldn't really see what was up ahead. So we were coming up to this, um, the river was going to bend left and then right. And in the corner on the left, as we were coming to begin turning left a baby popped up so we stopped paddling but obviously the river then carries us forward and i literally just got the words out where's mum when mum popped up on the right <gasps> we went between no, her and her baby. So you, yeah worst case scenario <laughs> we up, we up. yeah <laughs> really badly so she was not surprisingly fairly nonplussed about so, that and she she charged us she came at us so how many how many meters away was she and how deep's this water it wasn't i don't know exactly how deep it was as all i knew at that point was we were trying to get to the riverbank and get away from her so i'm up front paddling as hard as i can koa who so we the way we had it set up if we weren't in white water territory the creek boat the, the white water boat was on the back of the raft and someone would sit there so there was like a spare at the back so at the time that was paolo he leapt like it was almost in like one giant leap he suddenly appeared at the front of the raft obviously trying to get away far away from her who was coming for us Ko was on the oars, like going as hard as he could. So she's swimming. The, the, she's the coming for us. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't see it because I was up front. Ko said she, he saw she tried, she put her head on, she tried to flip us. But obviously it's really heavy, the raft with all the kit and, and everything and us. And so she paused. And then the next thing, I just felt this really massive tug on the raft. And I oh. turned round and she's fully bitten into the back of the raft. Like she's this massive hippo attached to the raft. And it's like, I've never experienced real primal fear before. And this was a primal fear like I've never experienced. And it, it's just, I just, yeah, it was like, I I had enough thought to sort of go, okay, well, at least there's, I don't know, you know, two, two meters of raft and kai between me and her. It's not over yet. Yeah. And just, just, it's all I thought was just paddle. Just, we've got to paddle. And, and so we did and we all just kept paddling. And luckily she... 
she let go at the raft. I don't know whether it was the air popping out or she realized she, by this point she was a little way away from her barb. She stopped. She didn't move away completely, but it gave us a chance to get away from her. So we got to the riverbank. Oh my God. So she burst at, a hole in it. Oh, there was a massive hole. So it would have been, what is that? So about, I don't know, 30, 30, 40 centimeters by 10 centimeter hole. And it, but because it's in, it's inflated in sections. Sort of in sections. So it's not like the whole thing went down. It was just this back section, but the rest of the section, you know, what I was sitting on stayed the, you've got an inflated um, base of the raft that stayed inflated. Wow. But oh my God, especially because they, they can swim fast, can't they? And they can they run, run really along fast. the bottom of the, the water really, really quickly. So, so yeah, well, luckily we were able to then get out. So we would, you know, we jumped out and jumped up the riverbank and just sort of paused and watched and she backed off a little bit. And so we, with the help of some local farmers, we then unloaded everything pulled the raft up and then the boys got to work patching it so we they put a patch glued a patch sort of inside and outside of the raft so we had a really strong patch on there oh my god but, but that, what did that do because that's your sixth day in this is day six so day six and knowing that we've just got weeks of hippo territory is one of my biggest fears coming into it we just face it i mean you know most of the time it's you know fear once face loses its power not when it's a 1500 kilogram feisty no. vegetarian so then it was like knowing that we had to get back on the water and i was i did sort of have to check in with myself and go okay well you know like, what are the options here and it's like well either we carry on through these weeks of dealing with hippos mm. or i stop and i think this it comes back to the power of purpose like i said i'm not fearless i don't describe myself as particularly courageous but you know when you sit yeah, stop and go okay what do i want to do do i stop and, you know, my instinct in my gut response was, no, I'm keeping going. And luckily, one of the guys, Peter, was just extraordinary coming up with solutions under pressure. And I just am in awe of him. So he, we, what we'd been told, what those guys already knew, if you're going through hippo territory, because they sleep under the water and you can't see where they are, when you're in hippo territory, slap the, the surface of the water with your paddle and they'll pop up to see what it is and then you can go around them which is great if you're in a, a really wide part of the Nile where you, you can actually go around them, but where we were, we couldn't. So Peter said, look, next time we come up to a hippo, we stop, we get off the water, leave the raft in the water, but you know, walk up the bank and we can f just tow the raft past. And within an hour, which just having that plan made me feel so much better. It's like, great, you know, I haven't got to stay in the raft every time we come past these so river monsters. Do, do they not... Are they not, do they not feel as threatened when? They feel as threatened, but I don't feel as threatened. Yeah, because you can <laughs> less, run. I mean, yes, they can get out and they run and they can, but they're less likely to get out and, and run during the day. And you've got a bit more of a head start when you're in the water with them. You've got, you might only be 20 meters away from them. And we, within an hour, we came around the corner and, and there was this huge male hippo. So we did exactly what we, we talked about and agreed got out and this thing put on a psychotic display, like opening and closing its jaws. You know, those jaws open so wide yeah. and it was jumping up and down and then it was scattering shit with its tail. Like this thing was clearly not impressed with our presence. And we just waited until he eventually calmed down. And then we very slowly led, um, towed the, the rough past and once we were what we considered a safe distance away then got in oh my god that'd be so scary but because yeah. if he like you literally just going on hope kind of thing because if he goes for you 
you know, like it's all over. It's all over. You're like hippos. Don't they eat more humans? Like I think they kill more humans than most other animals. It's just they are really aggressive, and a lot of people get um, attacks. Often happen as well because they get out to graze at night, and they can go like five, ten kilometers away from the river. So they go a long way inland. And someone told me that a lot of attacks happen, like the, you'll get the farmers and people going to work in the mornings and as the hippos are going back to the river and and that's where you sort of can have some dodgy situations happening there. And But for us, it was like, it was, I got really, really stressed because we had a lot of interactions with hippos. We couldn't always get off the water. And I got to the point where I was just on edge all the time and just looking looking and i just had to stop myself and say, like sarah one my mantra for the whole trip was control the controllables because i said you cannot stressing obviously isn't gonna stop the hippos popping up and it's not gonna do it's like either you stop the expedition or you carry on and trust that you as a team are going to be able to deal with what comes up and and i just had to sarah just accept it accept it or stop and accept it and it just it just broke that obsession almost was developing in my head about it but what what about when you see the hippo and you go to the edge of the river and wait for it to relax or calm and then walk down walk along the river to get back in past it what about crocs <laughs> the good thing is, you know what i mean like, the like, hippos are good. i didn't even think of that at the time because i think i'm so shit scared yeah. about the hippos no again like we you know the, the crocs that we saw we saw some decent sized ones and you know they, they'd say be sunning mm. themselves and we'd come around the corner and they would just disappear into the water i think mm. my feeling was that they were more of a threat when we were in the water and not on the river back and we were it's not like we were you know within a them being able to strike and get us yeah, like they'd yeah. have to really come out and, and get us and maybe i'm you mm. know sort of naive and not getting it but that wasn't the the they didn't seem they were never felt like a real threat so how are your like your nerves like it are pretty pretty heightened by these um by the hippos but what about the others on the on the raft like the yeah, locals they were, are they <laughs> a little bit we were all pretty stressed and sometimes you know you'd, we, there was one morning we woke up and we heard this hippo making its way upstream and while none of us said anything to each other, you could just you could cut the atmosphere with a knife when we got on the raft because we all knew what we were getting into. We all knew that we was like, oh, shit, it's another day with hippos. Wow. Yeah, so because of the hippos in these areas, is the Nile not used too much? There were we we still saw a lot of quite a lot of fishermen there. I mean, I felt better when we saw quite a few fishermen. I tended to relax a bit, going, Well, there can't be that many hippos here. Um I think the problem was that where where we were, because it was very narrow and there's a lot of people, and we saw like kids throwing stones at hippos. So I think they've, you know, they're aggressive at the best of times and then they're having these really bad interactions with humans as it is. So it was just sort of just fires them, fires them up, I think. Wow. Why are the kids, kids throwing rocks at hippos? Both kids being kids. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. So even with all this... um. With all this like anxiety and fear with with the you know first couple of weeks of the the hippos, are you getting a sense to be able to like relax and enjoy it to be able to enjoy the scenery and enjoy the um the the nature and the the culture around you? Well, it sort of happened a little bit later because day six we had the the attack with the hippos day eight 
we got arrested and detained in Burundi. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Let's okay. Let's go by day <laughs> no, by day. Yeah, it let's... wasn't all like this. Um, so we we come to a point where the the river we were on was turning into the Akagera, and there were multiple channels to go down, and we're right on the edge of this lake, and the lake has got um like an unmarked border from between Rwanda and Burundi, and because there were multiple channels. And they weren't like all on the GPS and we certainly didn't want to go up a wrong channel and then have to back paddle. You know, it's obviously not great on a, with, um, with a, with a raft. So we, I said, look, let's ask the, the local fishermen and they'll tell us which way to go. So some guys were helping us and then, and these are guys just like two guys in dugout canoes. And then another couple of fishermen came over and I was really sus because I looked at these, these new guys and the guy up front had like nice cargo shorts on and a bomber jacket and decent haircut whereas the rest of the guys they had like holes in in t-shirts and stuff the poor guys you know poor as church mm. mice so i was a little bit sus so anyway he said you know this is what we're doing he said okay look come this way so we followed him in doing so he effectively led us across the unmarked border i mean we would have been right on the edge there anyway but he definitely led us across and he said look wait here I'll call my friends and they'll show you the way to go. So we're like, well, okay, that's nice. <laughs> but the next thing we know, across the lake comes this tinny with a machine gun on the front of it, three guys clutching their AK-47s. It's like, oh, this doesn't look good. <laughs> so they ask us for a paper. So I give them all the papers, but we don't have um, visas for, for Burundi because we had no plan to go there, right? So we give them the papers, they look at them and the guys are explaining the situation um, in Swahili and and they, the, the guys decided, no, we want to take you for more questioning, row across the yeah, lake. because they want money. So, so, so we start rowing across the lake. I'm at this, this point surreptitiously on the GPS because on the GPS I've got you could text. I'm sending a text to Dave who's there to let him know what's happening because he, he was able to track... You know, I didn't have a live tracker that was publicly available, but he could always see through my phone and the GPS where I was. So told him what's happening. So we get to the other side and they, the army start questioning us. Um, and and then the police started talking to us, but I didn't realize they were police. It was a weekend. And they the police were all in these like bad Adidas tracks. <laughs> just felt mm. like some kind of Miami vice bust in the, yeah, in, yeah. in the jungle gone very wrong so we were questioned by them and then i spoke to one of the army guys who said no it'll be fine you'll be on your way soon but the police decided they wanted to make more of it so then they start going ask us to they want to go through everything in the raft so they're sort of checking for contraband i'm guessing so we, and they're to the point that i'd show them here's a box of matches and they're like open it like, you're fucking kidding me right okay so i open it one bit was quite funny. So for, for whatever reason, we all had, like me and the three guys had piles of gear that we were sort of going through with someone. And for whatever reason, Kai happened to have my toiletries bag. And then there's this box, which has got feminine hygiene products in it with tampons in it. <laughs> one of the, the brinding guy goes, is asking like, what's that? What's that? Because he's never seen that before. So poor Koa has to try and explain what a tampon is. You're kidding. <laughs> because, because this is quite 
quite poor areas it is too, i mean it was through. it was crazy right so they actually had to put a cordon up like rope the area off because there was just like hundreds of local villages it was like something out of apocalypse now mm. kind of heart of darkness it was it was crazy it's making you super crazy nervous because you, you kind of know what they're doing like i've had this kind of thing happen to me where they're just like oh they're looking for something wrong because they know if they can get something on you then you're gonna have to pay yeah and so I guess that's what they were doing. And stupid, I don't know. Like it was only someone I was talking to recently, and he said, "Oh, did you offer them a bribe?" I'm like, "Oh, I didn't even think of that. God, I could have avoided the whole thing if I just given them some money." It didn't occur to me because mm. it's just not, you know, for us here, it's not in our way of thinking. Yeah. So I just hand over a bribe. So we, they took, especially like when you don't like, you're not doing anything wrong or haven't this done is anything. It. You're, you're, just, just, you're just like, oh yeah. And it's like, surely they're just going to let us go. Exactly. It's like, they're going to let us go. They're going to let us go. And then you realize that oh, I don't think they're going to let us go. And they've taken passports and, mm. and no, they hadn't taken passports. I don't think by that point, they taken cameras and laptop. We still had our phones. So then they're like, right, load everything on a truck. So they had like a flatbed ute with benches, you know, facing just um, no back to back and they're like okay you load that up we couldn't even put the raft on there we've loaded everything else up you're and they're stressing because like, this is eight days in i'm just as i'm pissed off actually i'm mm. i was pissed off. i wasn't nervous at this point because again it's like we've done nothing wrong this is you guys the, are just being pain in the ass this is i was just thinking like from when i used to live in indonesia when you said earlier having just that added insurance by having permits or having authorities know what you're doing because I remember just this, I went and got an Indonesia license once and I met this, um, when I was there, I was, I was at the police headquarters in, in Bali in Dempasa and when I was there, I was started chatting with uh, the, the guy who was doing the course, who was doing the motorbike mm-hmm. course and it happened that he was just a, he was a police chief or whatever, some big dog that was just filling in that day and I started chatting with him and then I did the course and everything, it was all cool and when he gave me he got me the license he said hey like this is my name you ever get in trouble just um Mm. you know give me a call i never had to call him but i had to use his name Mm. often i remember i had it saved in my phone and i remember just getting pulled over by police and same thing that i what i used to do was tie my key around the mirror because i'd pull you over and take the key and then once they got the key you got to give money to get the key back yeah but if it's tied on they can't get it and then when you pull out your license, they want the license. But I would just like, no, you can't have it. I'll show them because once they get the license and they have it to get it yeah. back, you got to give them money. And quite often I'd say like, oh, like, do you want me to call my friend? The, you know, chief, blah, blah. Oh, no, 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 <laughs> off you go. Because that's the thing. So like for, for you, you know, you're getting arrested. Everything's getting put on the flatbed. <laughs> Are you thinking to like try call like... Well, that but I don't want to because I know that they, they're already you know, looking at the stuff that we've got. And, and in some of these countries, if you've got like a satellite phone, it can be really suspicious. So mm. I just like going along with it. So we, we load up, like we sit on the on the benches on the back of this flatbed ute and me and Pal on one side, Co and Peter on the other. And then we've got an armed policeman like with a AK-47s on each corner. And we start heading into Burundi. And I was like, shit. So then we stop at this village after, I don't know, like half an hour. And I said to the to the guy in charge, I said, look, can it's getting cold and, and dark and we're in wet clothes. The guys are going to get really cold. Can we get change, please? Which was true. Mm. But it was also a bit of a front because I knew that they'd put me in a room on my own and I'd be able to get another message out to Dave. 
and so I was sort of finding this this stuff quite exciting. Mm. I completely underestimated the seriousness of the situation. So I got a message out today. We get back on the year and we start flying further into Burundi. We stop at another village. Each one of these villages, they're knocking back the beers. And we are freaking hurtling through this countryside. It's like this is probably the most dangerous part of the trip. At one point as we, we pulled away and every time like a crowd would appear around, you know, this is like this white women being arrested and it was like i was being you know shown off through the mm. taken through this as like this trophy swag that they got or something it was it was very it was funny not funny anyway we, we pulled away at one point and a flash went off in the crowd so i think one of the guys had taken a, a photo on the um camp on the on the phone car stops one of the policemen gets out pulls it was a, it wasn't the right guy pulled someone out from the crowd who they thought had taken the photo like pushed and kicked him to the ground so hard. I mean, they would have, I don't know, probably busted a rib or something. It was just that, that first inkling of what the what the guys were potentially capable of. I was like, oh, this isn't good. So anyway, then we get to the police station. So it's about a 90-minute, hour to 90-minute ride into Burundi. So when we get to this police station, we're taken in. We have to unload all our stuff and put it in a room. We're then taken for more questioning. So they, what were the questions? It's just like, what are you doing? Um, I mean, they're even asking, like, what's your marital status? This other guy came in who was the chief prosecutor. They then wanted our phones, and I was surreptitiously, before handing it over, deleting all the messages with Dave because it would have looked very dubious. We had sort of um, mm. code words and things like that. It would have looked like I really was a spy or something. So I was like, and he'd always said, keep all your devices clean. So I was surreptitiously, like, deleting everything, handed over the phones, handed over passports. And when I got outside, oh, it wasn't the chief prosecutor in there at the time, but when I got outside, the, this prosecutor guy came up to me and said, oh, I hear you're single and you don't have children. I was like, yeah. He said, that's shameful. <laughs> I was like, really? I was like, I was tired. I was hungry over it. It was just pointless questioning. It was just going nowhere. And so then they're like, okay, we're going to take you to a hotel for the night. Which was, I was like, oh, excellent. Which obviously I was going to have to pay for. I'd be so scared of losing all my stuff, but I know this is it. And, and but I'd managed to sneak. So I managed to sneak in. They gave us literally like a minute to grab some some clothes and toiletries. I'd managed to sneak in on the um within my the PFD the inflatable thing like um life jacket not inflatable the satellite phone and the GPS. So I still had that. So I still had those comms devices, thankfully. So then we're taken to this sort of half-star hotel and shown to some rooms and an armed guard is outside on the pavement. So it was basically under house arrest. And and at first I was like quite excited because I was like, awesome, at least I get to have a, a shower. And I spied in my, my room. I saw the the bathroom and a shower. And then I walked into the bathroom and there was a 15-litre jerry can of water. And it's like, oh, there's oh, no running bucket, water. The, the old bucket, bucket shower. <laughs> But that night after, under sort of cover of darkness, I called out onto the, the veranda and, and put a call in. It's just like, sort of, I'm just going to take a chance. If they catch me with the satellite phone, they catch me. But I just wanted to put a call into Dave. And when I heard his voice, it was just, because I was, obviously I was a bit tense. And it's as much for the guys as me. It's like, this is my choice to be here. Yeah, yes, I've engaged and them and, and they're being paid. But this is like, I've got a duty of care to these guys. Mm. And, um... And then hearing Dave's voice and, and him just going, it's all cool. We're going to get you out. It's going to be fine. Just go along with it. Be completely compliant. Don't, which I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to get bullshit with him anyway. Just know everything's happening at, at our end to get you out. So Dave 
Dave was amazing. So he ended up, he drove to, he lives in, in Victoria, drove to Canberra and was then speaking to intelligence community and diplomatic areas. And not just because I'm the dual national and the Brits have got a far better presence in, in Africa mm. for obvious reasons. And I'd, you know, I'd gone and met with, gone to the embassies, British and Australian embassies when I'd done my recce's. And so then he was speaking to the FCO, the, the British equivalent of DFAT and... And yeah, eventually after a couple of days, they they said they would let us go. But a it was couple just, of days. Yeah. So they had you in there for a couple of days uh, without knowing anything, not knowing what was going to happen. Oh um, wow, God, that would have been stressful. It was, but it was one of those. You know, it came back to control. The control was like, there's nothing I could do, and it was it was really lovely. So we were the um, just across the road from a, a Catholic church, and the hotel was run by the nuns. And it was all French speaking. So for, for the first time, and pretty much the only time on the trip, you know, it was like, was relying on my schoolgirl French, my basic language skills, because the guys couldn't speak French. So it was sort of relying on me. And um, and I was trying to very basically chat to the, to the nuns. They were like, what's going on? And I told them. And at one point when the, when the main policeman came back, one of the nuns brought the, the priest over and was like, obviously kind of having a chat to go, what are you doing? <laughs> what? Mm. Come on. So it was kind of nice having having them in a in our corner. corner yeah. yeah, and they were just really lovely, and they were, you know, it was, and I just use it as a time to get to know the guys better, you know, because we, we've been thrown into this quite, you know, very intense day six, you know, hip attack, and mm. we didn't all, well, they all knew each other. I didn't know them, and so it was a really, it was a really lovely bonding, <laughs> like bonding time of me just having some one-on-one time and each of them, getting to know their backstories a little bit more, and then having had that almost like that shared suffering, you know, that shared mm. experience brought us, you know, closer together as a team. And I think possibly helped them, you know, put a little bit of trust in me yes. that I had the setup to get us out of this. Oh, that's that's the yeah, stuff. the kind of beauty in the in the drama. Yeah. But how so when did where did the call come from to get you out? So we finally, they said, oh, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. No, it didn't. And then the next day some guys came and they, they had, it was weird, they, they brought my laptop and they wanted to see files on the laptop because obviously everything was had passwords on. So just showed them some random files uh, which weren't going to cause any concerns. And they're like, okay, we're going to take you to the border and you're going to get released. And David sent me a message. And then when we went back to the police station, everything was loaded up on a, on a car again. And I was able to... I was openly then using the sat phone and they, and Dave explained what was going to happen. It's like, you're going to be taken to the border. Um, Joanne, the fixer, we didn't think Joanne would have anything to do. Joanne had a work cut out for her. So she's then got um, a driver to come and meet us. And there's like this handover. And there was this moment, it was just, it was super tense on mm. the way there. They tried to get me to go in a different car to the guys, which I refused because I was just very concerned that, if they split us up, they might take the guys or do something different. So we were like the four of us squeezed in the to the back of this ute. As we were driving, for some reason the the FCO, the Brits, um, phoned one of the police. So they handed me the phone. I'm like, Hello? I'm like, This is so and so from from the FCO. Have they hurt you? Have they threatened you? Have you been harmed in any way? I was like, What? Um, and that's when I started to get a feel for this is how kind of and that mm. happened multiple times. And so you sort of realize, yeah, it was pretty. We were we were very lucky in how it kind of turned out, and it could have been very in, different. Do you think they got in trouble? No, I don't think. I don't. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think yeah. so. And in, in a way, that that in a way that was a kidnapping. 
yeah. you really think about it, it's because yeah. they took you guys just because they had authority. But at the end of the day, it's like, what else would they have wanted? They wanted to make a thing out of something to yeah. get money. You know what I mean? They wanted to try find something, something or they wanted, you know, like they had all your stuff. They had you guys in a super vulnerable situation. They had you in a place where, you know, you're going to have to pay. And it's just lucky that you had those, um, yeah, the sat phone or you could make those calls and yeah. have the backing to be able to get you out of it. And Oh, if I hadn't had day, I've, I've said to him multiple times, so I'd still be rotting <laughs> prison in Burundi I'm sure of it oh my god it was um yeah it could have turned out very different and it just felt super tense all the way there like we paused at one point in the car and I was just I just it felt like they were constantly looking for a reason to be able to keep us you know I think to your point earlier like just looking for something yeah and they couldn't find it and you know there was enough pressure happening from different angles to make it to make them sort of feel that releasing us was was a good thing to do so we got to the border and then i was led into one room then into another room and i just saw this rwandan flag on the table and the guy just looked at me and smiled and said you're safe and it was just like i was was going to cry i was just like it was just this relief washed over me it's like okay we're okay we've we've got through it it was a really so then he wanted to hear the story of what happened. Then Peter was, he asked Peter to come in just to corroborate the, the story. And then we were loaded up in a car. And as we went underneath the sign saying, welcome to Rwanda, we so, high-fived big time. Wow. So that, the the river itself, did, is the border just like half in the, like half and half or something like in the middle or like? No, it's just, it comes down. It literally touches, almost touches the border with, with Burundi. It's just that you've got this lake. So that's where we were. When I knew it was going to, we'd be right on the edge, but there'd, obviously there'd just been no plan yeah, to go to Burundi because of, for one, I didn't need to. And two, it, it, you know, it yeah, does and, have quite a hectic reputation. Yeah. And you don't think, and you wouldn't think like you'd, anything like that's going to happen. No. So, this guy with the the clothes the, that had the nice clothes, do you think he was just just setting his up? Yeah, it's just like I mean, like how often do you do you sort of, it would be a mm. slow day there most days, right? Yeah. You know, if you're on border patrol and checking for smuggling or anything like that, and it's like, oh, mm. here we go, let's make something of this. Uh, you know, <laughs> I've seen this type of thing time and time again. Yeah. In, in and so the the one thing you know with third world countries, you do have to have your wits about you. You meet the most amazing people, yeah. but sometimes it is hard. I remember, like you know, living in Indonesia for years, it's like you have all these friends. I remember I worked at the surf camp in Indo, and like I had fifty two staff, and I was friends with them all. Yeah. But as soon as I'd like leave my thongs out the front of my heart, I'd be gone in a second. I remember my mate who was the boss at the time, he lost three phones in a week. I remember all the boys, their laptops, they were just doing some work. They put them all on the bar and turned around and turned back and they're all gone. Three brand new like Mac laptops and like there's only like six other locals there that were there just in this quiet little resort and we're like, who's got the laptops? They're like, we didn't see anything, you know, and they're your mates that you're hanging out with every day. Like, so sometimes it would get super hard because it's like, you didn't know who was your authentic friend or who wasn't. Mm. And then, um, or if they just wanted something and I definitely do have, uh, super authentic friends over there, but then it's just, sometimes you get over being on edge. Like, yeah, you're always watching yourself and yeah. uh, Yeah. It's just, yeah. Yeah, I've got story after story of that stuff. Yeah. yeah, It's just, it's so different. And, 
yeah like you say it's you sort of you don't know who who to trust or what the agendas mm. are and it's it's you're in a very different kind of world there yeah. you know from a police and a political setup and if you're not if you haven't lived there and spent a lot of time there you can't read that yeah. you know again it was another reason for wanting to have locals mm. with me is people who can potentially read it de-escalate it because it's yeah. like, i don't necessarily know the best way to de-escalate this and peter who which is was super smart to do that yeah it was just you know it just seemed to make sense sense to me and peter was really good at de-escalating a lot of situations like when we came back into um, uganda near to ginger we got too close to a um a dam and nearly got arrested again and we had some police wanting to arrest us some not and you know i just think peter was just very good at getting people on side and and mm. yeah just de-escalating because that's obviously what you want to do and that's why just going along with it not riding up to it is just to try and keep it as friendly and positive as you can and yeah yeah fun times so, so what happened when you got back to the you, you back to rwanda you get to go back in the nile like back onto your mission yeah so we we put in a fair way away from the, not surprising from the burundian border we we had a couple of days in kigali just to let things mm. settle down and i had conversations with the fco and they were sort of they were really nervous about do not do south sudan we mm. cannot help you in South Sudan. I'd actually got a letter from DFAT before I left asking me to reconsider my plans. That was quite confronting. But anyway, so yeah, we just let let it settle down a little bit and then we put in a long way away from the Burundian border and yeah, just got back into it. And that stretch then through Tanzania and back into Uganda was then I got to get into the swing of things and enjoy it. I mean, we had one day where we, we had these really hectic rapids and we kind of went over this little waterfall. I'm not quite sure how we survived that one, but we did. That was a classic type two fun day. Yeah. You know, at the time it's absolutely terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> but afterwards we're like, oh my goodness, that was, like, amazing. That was amazing. That was so cool. And, and it was just a beautiful African, you know, some of the classic African scenery from somewhere with the acacia trees, acacia trees, you know, like umbrella trees mm. and just beautiful people and just enjoying watching, like kind of watching this story unfold in front of me, you know, as you're just cruising along and just getting into the, rhythm. the monotony and, and the rhythm, but, you know, good monotony kind of yeah. a way. And, and, you know, chatting with the guys or not, you know, a lot of the times they just be chatting amongst themselves in, in their language I couldn't understand. And that didn't bother me at all. Cause then it was like, you know, I'm someone who needs their own space very much. Mm. And my big, you know, one of my concerns coming into this trip is like, oh my God, I'm going to be with people solidly for six months. And it, but it kind of gave me that that space. Mm. And, and then we chat and I'd learn more about them and the culture and background. And it was really cool. What, what were you learning about yourself as you, as you went on through the, through the expedition? Just, I think, you know, the adaptability and some of the, you know, the mindset stuff where it worked, where it, where it didn't, you know, I tried to research things like how to deal with pressurized situations and how, whether you see something as a threat or a challenge is obviously going to change mm. your approach, you know, physically, mentally, cognitively. And sometimes I could get that to work and sometimes I couldn't. And coming back to really focusing on the things I could control, which is basically your response, you know, how you think, how you feel, how you act and putting that stuff into practice and, and, you know, I found that I was really nervous about the first section and, and I thought I would enjoy it. And, and as much as it was scary, 
it just made me come alive like like in a way I'd never experienced before and I'm not a drama seeker but it was just it was amazing and you just get that confidence like when you go okay I got through that and I made some good calls there and I got that right and and gradually my confidence built and understanding and you know as we went on then I would sometimes be you know when we were on the water generally the guys would make all the calls it was like you know I'd hand over the man the leadership mantle effectively to to Mm. to Paolo who was our, our lead guide but then, you know, later on at one point we were coming up and the, the river was going to split around a, a kind of island in the river. And I'd always be looking at where are exit points for every section. Mm. Because if something happened, we need to, you know, know where those exit points are to be able to get off and get help potentially. And we were coming up to one and the shorter route was going to take us away from exit points. But I made the cause like, no, we had deep papyrus on each side. We wouldn't be able to get off. I'm like, no, we'll go the longer way. And well, one of the guys, Kai, was pissed off with that call but as we came round to the point where we would have come out had we gone the shorter route there was a big um group of hippos where we would have come out oh. so i'm like god i'm so glad i overruled that one and made yeah. that call but then it was like okay you know I, i'm and that gave me you know again that little bit more confidence a little bit more confidence so it was it, it's just you know you when you push yourself you find out what what you like what you don't like what you're capable of you learn to adapt more, you know, learning to how I just appreciated having less, you know, mm. I was so used to having lots of stuff and it's like, God, you know, when you're really enjoying what you're doing moment to moment, suddenly having all that stuff around me and just didn't, didn't miss yeah. it. I'm just, I'm just picturing know. it all here and just, just how like kind of cool and fun it is. It's like you're going, you're pretty much just doing a huge like rafting camp trip, you know, you're going through so much different scenery, but pulling up, you know, making camp, you know, like just, you got everything that, that, that goes with that, you know, you know, cooking, we just making a fire. No, most of the time we had basically like a single gas stove. So a big gas cylinder with, you just screw on a a stove sort of top on top of that. And so we just had it. That was what we were cooking on. Um, We did more fires when I got up to Sudan, then we were making a lot of fires, but through there, yeah, it was just making, it was just got into a good routine. You know, we'd make dinner, set up camp, have something to eat. Mm. go to bed write the, my diary and the camaraderie is going good yeah. like you even between them did you you feel that they were all getting along as well they did towards the end so we did the first section which took about i don't know was that about three or four weeks four weeks yeah it was four weeks and then we had another 12 days for the rest of uganda by the time we were getting to the end of the, that last section i could just you know i could obviously begin to pick up when there was just a little bit more tension a little bit more squabbly mm. but you know, those guys, they, and I gave them all because it was then Christmas when we finished. And so I stayed, stuck around for Christmas and gave them a little, um, uh, soapstone hippos <laughs> and then a little note to each of them. And, you know, they all, they all brought, you know, their own things, you know, as part of the, of the team. And like you had Co who just made me feel really, and they all did, they all made me feel safe and we were a good team and we worked really well together. And, and I really, valued them and and what they what they brought you know Mm. peter with his ability to communicate with everyone and deal with pressurized situation koa i hadn't picked up and it was actually the one of the burundian policemen he said it to koa and then one of the guys told me is he just noticed that koa was kind of just always there where i was and i hadn't picked up on it and then i started to notice it and it was just this just in this purely protective kind of way 
there was mm. one point where we were going on a on a trip and, and he just stopped but everyone else had gone and got on the boat we were doing a, a tour up to Murchison River Falls but he just waited with me mm. and you just suddenly and I noticed it's like wow mm. and it was just really nice and then you know Paolo brings all his expertise and, and his dad jokes um so it was just, it was a really, really lovely team. And it was, it was, you know, we put in together in this pretty stressful kind of situation and, you know, you're together 24-7. But, but it worked. So how long, like, was their part with you? So we would have been together in total about five and a half weeks or so, maybe six weeks. Well, and that was up, to the, up, up to the South Sudan border. And then I came back and had christmas in in uganda and and i got to know one of the women who ran one of the local shack restaurants and she invited me to her home for christmas i was so excited and so i got to have a this ugandan christmas and spend time with her and her kids and family and and it was just it was amazing Mm. it was actually amazing you know it's like crazy too it's like the expeditions like you're there to have as much fun as possible i remember um so last year, I yeah, hitchhiked out to the Percy Islands and built a little hut and, and camped on the beach. And I was out there for six weeks and some boats came in or whatever. And I was hanging out. Um, they invited me for dinner. There was a couple of boats or whatever. And they invited me for some dinner and beers. And I'm sitting there and then this bloke says like, I don't know what his deal was, but he had, he had something. He had, a, he had a deal. I think it was a bit of a loner. And he, and he, he said, oh, like, oh, he shouldn't be able to have any because he's supposed to be surviving. And I said to him, I'm not supposed to be doing anything other than having a good time. So I'm just out here to experience these islands and whatever they have to give me. You know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. like, this is the experience. If someone yeah. offers me for dinner, I'm not going to sit like, down the beach down there by myself and go, oh, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm surviving. I'm just going to go back and eat me. <laughs> fish and rice i caught that day or whatever you know what i mean i'm just like no you guys are offering me chocolate chocolate. (laughs) you offered me a cold beer like you know what i mean i kind of um but i think yeah you're not going to make it hard for yourself just for the sake of making it hard for yourself it's like it's there to enjoy the experience exactly and, and that's what it was and and the meeting the people and having those connections and having a beer with people is part of it. You yeah. Know, you sort of, otherwise you're almost cutting your nose off to spite your face sort of. Yeah. Why would you do it? Yeah, exactly. Like you're there to like, you're doing this like cool expedition. You're there to have as like anything in life. Yeah. We, we're here to have as much fun with it as possible. Yeah. You know? Oh, so that just like kind of warms my heart. Like hearing this, um, cultural interaction and the people that you're meeting and the, the, um, relationships that are forming just yeah. by you just having a mission. Yeah. Yeah, you know? and just bringing it, bring it, yeah, bringing them all together and 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 sharing that, and yeah, and, and the people we met on the way, like there was one time where we were going across this lake, Lake Choga, and it was really hot. There was no camping because it was just this thick papyrus, and there'd be the I could just see on the on the satellite images like these shadows, which are basically channels coming out from the villages onto the lake. So we would try and find one of those to then go down there and find the village, and then go and camp or stay in a. Um, effectively like a motel and one of them we couldn't actually fit the raft down the channel so peter went um got the kayak and went down and spoke to the people locally came back brought someone who was going to act as security and sleep on the raft for the night with strict instructions no smoking on the raft (laughs) and then a couple of fishermen brought their boats and then took us down and it was just like this 
like trip into sort of Narnia, like we're going down this narrow passage and this thick papyrus, and then it opens out into this sort of open village with the grass um, sort of huts and and all the people in this thriving, you know, busy village and all the the fishermen coming and going. Mm. And we got in that the villages in in um, Uganda they have a chairman. And then it's almost like a, a company, you know, chairman and executives. They've got the executive and, and they're there to just help with a little bit of law and order where it hasn't escalated to needing the police, dealing with smaller issues, projects, you know, implementing projects, being that in between government and the people. And the rule is if you're going to a village in Uganda, you have to go and check in with the chairman, potentially sign a book or go and see the police. So we, we went and saw the chairman or Peter had already arranged it and the chairman invited us to stay in his house. He actually had quite a nice house. So then we got to go in and stay in the home. So we were waiting outside while they were, I think, they were I sort of getting everything ready, getting everything ready. And the family, particularly like the younger ones, were quite a long way away. And at one point, I think they were sort of nearly ready to invite us into the home. And the chairman went and, and, and got one of his, I think it was his grandchildren. So she would have been... I don't know, maybe seven or eight. And and he gently led her over by the hand, but she had her hands, also guided her, because she had her hands over her eyes in that kind of, if I can't see you, you can't see me way. Yeah. And when they, he got about, you know, a few meters in front, and then he just sort of gently pried her eyes, <laughs> her hands away from her eyes, and her eyes just widened, and she screamed and then sort of got away from him and just ran away like when she saw me so I don't know whether it's like she hadn't seen a white person before or not quite so close like she was the poor little mite she was mm. absolutely terrible it's like she'd seen a ghost wow um but then they invited us into the home and you know had a bucket bath there and then they made us food you know and I mean I gave them they didn't ask for any money but of course you know I gave them some money as, as a kind of you know a thank you and they gave up beds for us or in the family. I don't know. I think some of the family got turfed out of their beds for the night. Um, <laughs> and, and it was just these amazing, amazing mm. experiences. And I think, again, you know, if, if it had been a group of me and, you know, five other people, you know, Aussies or Brits or whatever, you just, I wouldn't have had that experience. But being that only person with the locals, I think mm. I got an opportunity to just, just get that much deeper in yeah. you know what i mean it was it isn't was amazing it, isn't it just incredible what traveling gives you it just like it, the people that you meet along the way i remember i was in um Oaxaca in mexico and i'd snapped um my knee the day and i was I had to drive and and fly out to there fly to mexico city then to la to come back to australia and i'm just driving around i was trying to find a pharmacy to get a, a knee brace and i've come past like this little kind of like restauranty kind of thing on the side of the road i was just looking i was like oh, i'll have dinner somewhere and so i've, I've gone to this i found a pharmacy and then and got a knee brace kind of thing of and then i've gone to this um like where i saw this like little restaurant and i've um walked in and this guy's come out and he was just like so honored that this white guy oh. would choose his restaurant to to sit so he's like he sits me down he's like this is my my best seat it's only like on little corner like only like three little tables like a really mm -hmm. just like and then he's like i will make you the best that i have and then he was like so proud and then he he brought his daughter out to meet me then his son <laughs> and then his wife and then his mother you know and then once he'd he'd um made this meal for me he's like do you and he's like do you mind if i i sit with you 
and and try practice my English and and learn about you and I was like yeah dude sit down <laughs> like you know but it just meant the yeah. world to him and I sat down with his family and they're just in awe because you're a traveler from a far away land yeah. you know and like these villages like you go into that little girl like never seeing a white person it's like there's this person from a far away land mm. that she uh, a place she can't even imagine yeah you know yeah. she can't fathom and to get to see that you know we take it for granted everyone around us is so traveled and, and has mm. seen everything and done everything and you sort of, I don't know, you just get that whole different appreciation and perspective on mm. on things. And those, you know, like that experience you'd have had with that family, like that that stuff just stays. It it's heart. so special. Then, I don't know, you know, going to Macca's in LA, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> It's yeah. like, what? No, yeah. I got to experience that, you know, that real warm, soul-warming and, and extraordinary experiences. Wow. So is this um this this paddle like you know the the five weeks and then to like is your is how's the body going at this stage like you know like is it a nice relax to to when you when you have the Christmas off with these guys do you get a nice relax or is or are you just ready to just continue? It was it wasn't so much the physical I I didn't sleep brilliantly at, at times so I was catching I got exhausted absolutely exhausted during it but it was more lack of sleep than the physical effort it was just really nice to have a break from just being on edge mm. all the time and worried about you know so from moment to moment it's like am i going to die mm. um not that i was thinking like that all the time but it was just that yeah, well, you know that so level of stress risks, that's yeah. up all the time so it was just nice to have a break from that and then but then there's you know it's you swap one stress for another because then it's like great now i've got to get sudan sorted and i was having problems getting my entry visa so i'm trying to sort that out and then finding someone else who could sort out my visa for me and then get the flights booked and booked and you know thinking about getting all of the next thing sorted so as so, soon as you finish one thing it was then right now i've got to get yeah the next section done so from where you are now it's like so you can go to sudan but just not south sudan yeah so i just missed south sudan and because the intel i had hoped to go just to the capital to juba mm. but the intel we got was that they were suspicious about what i was doing which i kind of get like this whole doing things for fulfillment and self-achievement, blah, 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 is not in a country that's been mm. in in conflict and civil war for probably over two decades. Like, that's not a concept to them. So it's like yeah. you must have an alternative. You're a spy or you're a journo or, or something. Yeah. So the intel we got was that they were going to detain me and that could have been for an hour. It could have been for a day, a month, weeks. I just didn't know. And at that point it was – Having what I'd already experienced in Burundi, it felt like that would be pretty Intense. the dumb or well, just a bit, you know, people on the outside would look at that and go, you had that experience and then you went and risked that, come on, you know, and then you're causing, you're creating problems and headaches for yeah. embassy officials and all of that. And it was like, it just didn't feel like as much as I wanted to go there, it was like, nah. And they, and again, it just screws it up for the next person who wants to come through. So I made the call not to do South Sudan at all and hopefully one day it's something i'll be able to go back and do so then instead flew up to khartoum the capital of um so i think it was on like the 5th or january or something like that um flew up to to khartoum so the nile itself is like what 6000 k Six, oh gosh, I can remember, 6,683 or something like that. And so yeah. this is, so you pretty much do the whole, you're going for the whole Nile except for this um, one part you've got to yeah. like skip by yeah. because um, just because it's it's just too dangerous, right? Yeah. So you just got to like hop over it. Yeah. And then so your gear, 
That so you... I was going to take it all with me. On the plane? Yeah, there was quite a lot. There was a bit of excess luggage there. <laughs> yeah. and, and I had a kite by that point. So then um, I'd been sponsored a particular type of kayak and that had arrived while I was in Uganda. So, there were, yeah, there was a lot of stuff to take. But all the things like the plastic barrels and things like a whole bunch that I left left with the guys and, and left that with, with them. So it was then – and I did leave a whole bunch of gear, like all my white water, like um, – PFD, my life jacket and helmet because I just knew I'd, I'll come back to Ginger at some point. I'd spent a lot of time there. It really felt like a second home and I got to yeah. know, you know, so many people there. I know there's other people's homes I'd gone to for, for Christmas and I'd just been really welcomed into the community by the locals and the expats. So it really, it really felt like home. And it's like, well, I know I'm going to come back here. So I left a bunch of stuff there and then took what I needed and, and flew up to Sudan. So how did, how did this next part go? Like when you, so this is, this is the part now, like where you're, you're paddling just solo, like, you know, um, like how is this part working? You're, you're in the kayak instead of a, instead of like the bigger kayak, just solo. Then are you going to have still your lead guides or other people with you? Yeah. So again, it was sort of flying up there and I'd met the, when I'd done my recce, met the, um, Sydney's, uh, canoe and rowing federation and and they did kayaking as well so then it was sort of getting back with them to to then work out how the next bit was gonna unfold and to a certain extent being guided by them you know i couldn't be too prescriptive on it they were doing a lot to help me so it's like whatever they thought best i'll go with so they gave me a local paddler basati and said he would come with me and then i'd been introduced to this wonderful guy fahed um a syrian who been living in in Sudan for for a long time and had business there and everything and he'd invited me to stay in his home which was brilliant and and he was sort of helping to kick things along because at the time it was a really it was an interesting but kind of difficult time to be in Sudan they were trying to overthrow the government and so there were a lot of protests happening on the streets so then I was sort of trying to get intel of like where protests were happening to make sure I could avoid those so it took a little bit just to get everything organized but then Fahed said that he would give he'd come along with him and his driver and give ground support just for the the initial section so we went south of um, Khartoum down towards the border with South Sudan started down there and then made our way back so it only took about a week then to come back up to Khartoum so it was a really nice sort of warm-up to get back into paddling and kayaking like I hadn't sat in a kayak for months by by this point so all my conditioning had Mm. kind of gone and just get into the swing of things of you know in a different environment completely different culture totally different culture uh and just gradually get into the swing of things and and the it's a whole different style of paddling now yeah totally different but it felt like i felt way more in my comfort zone as i and the whole thread of hippos and crocs had pretty much gone so that just you know, I was able to relax a lot more. So then it was sort of swapping the mental stress for more of the physical stress of then it's long days of, of paddling. And we were still doing the camping and everything and the, um, the canoe and rowing club, like they, they arranged for me to meet all sorts of local dignitaries and everything on the way. So I sort of got all this, there were lots of these kind of amazing experiences and people I met. So how, are you, how are you carrying your stuff now that you're just on the solo kayak with one other with one other guy on here. Well, luckily, because um, Fahad came along and, and he had his um, car, like, just loaded. It made it a lot easier. I didn't have to think too much about, you know, weight of food and things like that. We just, I went and did a, with, with Fahad did a massive shop. We just loaded it up in the back of his, he had a, a, a truck, um, you know, like a VW, um, like a BT50 kind of thing. Yeah, cool. And so we just loaded everything up in that. So that was great. So I didn't have to worry about all of that 
stuff. So we did that first seven days and then it was another sort of pause, time to organize the next section. And again, got to have some amazing experiences. Like one of the guys in the club invited me to his um, cousin's wedding. So I got to go. Everyone had said, you have to go to a Sudanese wedding. And I was like, well, how do I manage to find one of those? <laughs> I don't know. Do I just go out to people and ask them? And so um, Captain Hansa, he invited me to his cousin's wedding. And it was just, it was amazing. Because you've got like a thousand. Their weddings are huge, huge. And, and yeah, went along to this Sudanese wedding. And it was just, it was extraordinary. It was amazing. And so did that. And then was able to get ready to do the next section, which was a much longer. So that was going to be a month then going from Khartoum up to Egypt. And for this one, it was again, there was another paddler wow. joined me through the club. So that was Eamon. And then they they wanted me to have a support boat. And part of me really didn't want to have a support boat. I wanted to go like solo, you know, you know, okay, yeah. have another paddler, but, you know, I wanted to be self-supported. And, yeah. but there were the advantages as well. So then having a boat just made, you know, bought some more barrels, put all the food on there yeah. and have everything we wanted. So we we did have an escort boat for that. And, and so then it was another... Another team, so you had the captain of the boat, Captain Sally, his sidekick, um, uh, Sam, and then the paddler with me, Eamon. And so then it was another, you know, another team of four again and, and getting to know these guys. And it was another, yeah, amazing experience. Are, are, this whole time, like, are you getting good weather? Like, are you getting, like, nice, smooth conditions other than, like, the rapids? Like, or are you getting, like choppy like bouncy water days and like or like said, yeah days when you're just like oh my god you know because like you look out there today and it's with that yeah. westerly it's blowing here at maroubra it's like you could kayak out there all day it's nice and smooth but if like you know a nor'east or whatever it is here like an easterly yeah. pops up and makes that all choppy it's just like horrible to be in a kayak well we had headwinds and basically headwinds all the way and so it was, and it was, there were times, yes, you've got the current going in your favor, thank goodness, but it would make it, you'd have, because the river is so wide, you know, we've suddenly gone from where it was in Rwanda of being, you know, 50 meters wide at, at spots even less to suddenly you couldn't see the shore on the other side, you know, it'd be kilometers wide. Mm. And, and so you get a lot of wind chop, you know, and there were times I'd have like, what was that waves breaking over me? Not often, but it was. I would get, particularly in the mornings when you're going, so then you're paddling through the Sahara, which is an extraordinary experience, like going through the world's wow. biggest hot desert on the water. And at times it was, it was just breathtaking. You've got the, the sands coming down to the river's edge and it was beautiful, but it means it gets heaps cold at, at night. Yeah. So it's cold at night and then you've got, um, and you're sleeping on the sand. Wow, and then during the day it was- sleeping on the Sahara. Yeah. And it was the, the best camp, best camping. Like for the north of Sudan is stunning. I'd say to anyone who ever gets the opportunity to to go through the north of Sudan, it's it's extraordinary. It was just these amazing, amazing camping spots. So you've got these, you know, like rocky islands and, and sandy islands and and then this beautiful colour. It's like a, the colour of a Palomino horse, you know, that really soft kind of yellow. Yeah. It was I'm, it was really beautiful. Right and you've just got, you know, there's a lot of times shrub or, or palm trees, but literally only on the edge of the of the river, you go fifty meters inland and suddenly it's sparse, you know, it's there's there's not much around. You have some villages and people uh, you know, because everyone lives obviously close to the to the river because as soon as you're away from the river that you haven't really got much in the way of water. So you're seeing people a reasonable amount, but not all the further north we went, the more remote it got and 
it was I loved it. It was hard, and I got to the point because it was so sort of getting back to what you're saying. So yeah, during the day it was warm, but not. I didn't overheat massively. The mornings were cold. I was again, I was looking at some of my videos, and I've got like a beanie on. I've got every layer on that I had with me, and because it was obviously a very dry heat, and I'm used to you know Sydney, it's it's very humid. There it's very dry, and then the wind and the hands getting and the feet getting mm. wet, dry, wet, dry, wet, dry. It just it took all the moisture out. And lip balm would be getting used. Yeah, and it just yeah. Um, so the lips were cracking, and then the skin on my hands and my feet were literally just cracking open. Wow. Um, you, there wasn't much I could do about it. Are you it. getting into any point at this stage? Are you getting into like, oh, this is getting too hard, or is it just? Are you just still just getting just to enjoy it? It was getting hard. There were times that Dave would remind me, it's like, you're going to miss this when it's over. And at the time I was like, I'm not so sure about this. This is all really hurting. Like the mm. body, the fatigue builds and the body I'd wake, I turn over in the middle of the night and I'd feel like an 80 year old. Yeah. Just everything hurt. And it would hurt until I warmed up in the morning. And then the last few hours of padding each day would be quite sore. But then, you know, there's comments like that from Dave would just give me that kick up the ass to sort of go, appreciate this. Yeah. This is a really unique... And I was, most of the time, definitely appreciating it. It was... Yeah, I just realized it was just such an, a unique opportunity to get to do this and a way of seeing this these countries. Were you, yeah, what was keeping you you kicking on other than that? When you're when you're paddling, are you just doing that like like one more hour, two more hours, one more day, you know, kind of thing? Yeah, it's just like sometimes it be like just focus on the next the next stop. Okay, just paddle yeah. now to the next stop, and I'm gonna have some. I'm gonna have a muesli bar, you know, and just dangle mm. carrots in front of me. Just focus on whatever. Sometimes it would be yeah. You, you can look at getting to the end of the day. Sometimes it would be just getting to the end of the, the the next paddling shift, and it did get it did get quite hard. And when we got closer to the border with Egypt, you start to hit the reservoir. So you've got Aswan Dam, and and that backs up a long way. So then suddenly you still got headwinds, but no current helping you, and it was such hard work. We were like going so slowly. So you just you know it's like when you think the end line is there, and you're like, okay, we're getting closer. Well, then you're literally sort of crawling towards the end. It was tough, oh my God. tough going. Well, we, we had that. We sailed into New Zealand. We'd been at sea for, for a month. Sailed from Tonga. We got, we got becalmed for 10 days in Minerva Reef. And so we had no wind and we just, and we're just, and we're running out of food. Cause the thing is we didn't take any uh, much food. Cause we're only supposed to be, I think, 10 day or two week sail or whatever. And it ended up being like after having fun around Tonga and like waiting for our window and everything, cause you can't take any food into New Zealand. Mm. So we're running out of food and like the, um, the whole time like was just thinking, Oh, but once we get to New Zealand, we're going to get a burger. We're going to get it. You know, you start <laughs> doing all that dreaming. Yeah. And as we start sailing, sailing into the Bay of Islands, Bay of Islands, is that what it is? What it is from memory, yeah, it was like this magical day, but we had just like the wind straight, like straight on it on the nose, yeah. And it was this biggest tease because the whole time <laughs> it took a whole day to get there, like from seeing that, seeing the bay, we had to just tack and tack and just oh. zigzag our whole way in. It was like I'm so hungry, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, we've just got to make it there, and then we've got to get there. We're trying to get there by times that immigration still be up so we could like check yeah, in yeah and we didn't it took the whole day i don't think we made it to like five in the afternoon and then you have to like 
anchor off or like go on this like custom thing boat that's not on the land it has to be out yeah and then it's all like you kind of like you can't go to the land so now we're like 50 meters offshore where there's these these restaurants and pubs and people party yeah we can smell it we weren't allowed on it i kept going i'm gonna swim and my mate's like nah we'll get in too much trouble man you know but it was just like like as you said it said it's like one of those days you're just like it's right there you just can't can't get get there. there Oh, that would be <laughs> just paddling against it. I could, I could feel your pain. But is, is this the dam that where you got too close to? No, that one was back in Uganda. Um, that we got too close. They're very sensitive about getting close to kind of infrastructure, big infrastructure, and we just where we were getting picked up, like a car to to port, help us portage around the dam. He just got too. He parked up too close. And so they were not the water. You've got water police and land police and they just were not, the water police were really not happy about the fact that we got close. And I'd, I'd taken some photos as we'd come into this towards the dam, which again is a big no-no. Mm. So, and I, was like, and I had, we hadn't got stamped, passport stamp coming back into Uganda because we hadn't gone through, you know, like there wasn't yeah. a customs like you had there at, at New Zealand. You've got to go and find the kind of customs. So we'd just gone across Lake Victoria into uganda and hadn't got stamped so i was shitting myself going oh if they look at my passport they're going to see i haven't been stamped back in mm. you don't need you know again looking for excuses to arrest you and then i, and I was like shit i've taken these photos so then as the boys are being questioned i'm got my gopro out in the bag and i'm just surreptitiously deleting the photos and coughing over the beeps that it's making <laughs> and i'm deleting shit right? yeah, big coughs <laughs> yeah. and and was just trying to like lay low. And there was just one guy there, one of the police. And the way he was looking at me made me feel, it was the only time I really felt super uncomfortable, you know, despite everything that happened in Burundi, mm. I never felt threatened in any way. But the way this particular guy was looking, I felt really threatened. And like, I don't think if we get arrested and put in jail, I, I just had this feeling yeah. that that really yeah. wouldn't be good. Um, but luckily the land policeman seemed to, win the conversation between the two of them i don't know if he maybe had higher rank so he said just get on your way um but don't get close to these kind of things again and and that was coming into the like we were literally it was on the last day coming back into uganda after you know this hectic four weeks of stuff that had happened Mm. and um you know and and we're just like really we're gonna get arrested now so it was a big you know and then that milestone of them reaching the finish point for that first little bit um celebrated that milestone was very wow. relieved to be to be back there um, but didn't have those had different issues when i got into to egypt um, yeah, gonna, but not not dealing with those kind of issues yeah i was gonna say because I've, I've had you know a lot of friends and female friends travel um you know it, or quite a bit and one place that has a super bad rep for females is egypt like i've had friends um say that you know people just walked up in the street same with india kind of thing but i've heard egypt like um i've heard about people being spat on for like not being dressed right which is i i get that that's fair enough you make sure you really cover up and everything but I've, but it's more with men with women like walking up and grabbing them like in places they shouldn't yeah just like did you experience anything like that as a as a woman or is that just like that those stories are, f- are few and far between but just do ha- oh, they do happen I, I think they happen i don't know um how often they happen you know i'd go on to cairo you i think you're more likely to get that when you're 
dealing, you know, you're sort of walking around mm. the, the bigger cities. I never, yes, you know, I dress appropriately, but I never had any any issues. I don't know. Sometimes, I don't know whether it's a vibe you give off. And a kind of, I don't know. But for me, when I was on the river, there isn't there isn't the same chance for people to yeah. to, to hassle. So the way well, I had then another local paddler this time it was um, a guy called lovely guy called Nadim so he was an Egyptian paddler so he joined me he came down to Aswan and that's where we we started there together so again it was having someone local we really needed it because the police they, they were great they were very protective so obviously tourism they rely on so heavily in Egypt and they've had issues in the past which have really impacted the tourism so after like the terrorist attack in at Luxor, like they really mm. took a long time for them to recover. So they they once they sort of got wind of what I was doing, and we'd gone up to one when we got to the first lock, we went into the water police station. So you got them all along the river, just to let them know, hey, this is what we're doing. And we'd been told by the one that the police in Aswan, just let people know where you, where you are. So we went in and we did the right thing. And so from that point on, they were like, okay, well let us know where you're stopping each night, and then. Nadim, so he'd have to phone them up, let them know, you know, we'd make camp. And then they go, no, you can't camp there. It's not safe. And they would then start controlling where we could stop. And then it got to the point we had like an IRB, you know, like the rubber ducks, the police escorting, literally escorting us all the way. And I get off, we get off the river at night. We'd park up at the water police station because we gave up trying to camp. It was just, it was impossible because the police were never happy with where we stopped and a lot of the time we then either I'd be put in a police car or van or I'd be in a taxi and we'd have police riders sort of escort. I felt like some kind of traveling royalty, yeah. right? I'm like, kind of cool. who and what army is coming to get yeah. me? <laughs> and it was, yeah, there were times that we had, you know, police up front and police behind and then being escorted and told, you know, like, you're going to stay in this hotel and no, don't go out. And if you do go out, you will let us know. And then I'd sneak out. And, and 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 I felt like I was breaking out of boarding school again. <laughs> it was hilarious. Wow. Quite, I, yeah, maybe overboard, but at the same time, so nice. It was, like, and I think it was. It it made it really it not good for Nadine because he was call, like fielding all these calls from the police. Like, and one day, I think he would have had like over twenty calls. The poor guy, and he's here to have an adventure. Like he wanted to paddle the length of Egypt. Mm. He's not allowed to camp in his own country, and suddenly he can't. His his freedoms are taken away, and and he's having to do all this other admin and stuff. So I really felt for him. It was pretty um, suboptimal, I think, from you know what his thoughts were coming into it. Yeah. Um, but I really appreciate it. And I had to explain it to him. I said, look, you know, for me, it's making me feel heaps safer because I, you know, there is this constant threat, potential threat or, you know, hostile situations that, that could kind of happen. So at times, yes, it did. I did find it really frustrating because we'd have suddenly have, to, they'd force us, Every governor wanted basically wanted me. I was like this hot potato. They they wanted off the patch as quickly as possible before something happened to me. Yeah, you know, so suddenly we'd be forced. We'd be paddling, not knowing how far we've got to go, and they were just like, just keep paddling. And it's like, and it's dark, and it's like, but I really want to stop. I'm really tired now. And and it was just it was just completely out of our wow. control. But one they're probably thing... like we're doing a great job. They're going to go home and tell their tell the other tourists that we're all safe. <laughs> Which is true. They yeah, did. Yeah. It was really safe, and they were really yeah. lovely. Like I was never. People had said to me, "Oh, they're going to be asking you for money and bribes all the time." And mm. I think this is when 
actually being a, a, a female white, you know, not white, um, but a female traveler on her own paid off because it was almost like they were protective mm. as opposed to looking at a kind of potential opportunity to get some money. So I would actually, because some of these poor places, like they're having to sit there like all day, mm. like, you know, 10 hours. And it's like, oh, and it's, at times it was cold and miserable. And I'd say, like, Nadim, I'd really like to give these guys some some money just to say thank you. And some of the times, though, they wouldn't even accept it. Like, two guys, they said, no, I don't want want your money. I don't want your money. But can we have a a selfie with you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That I can do. Yeah. (laughs) So they were were really lovely and, and just... Yeah, they 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 did help, and and Nadine was great at just dealing with it all. But you know, it's at that point, it's sort of the home stretch, which is great, but it was just taking. It took a long a long time. Yeah, and so yeah, how is like your mental strength at this point, or like are you starting to like just want it to be over? You just want to get there, or, or are you still? Can you still even even though the the body's in pain and and it's struggling, and now you've got this added pressure of kind of the Egyptians taking control, are you still able to enjoy the journey or is it just like, all right, I'm, I'm ready to finish? There was a little bit, I'm ready to finish. And, but then I got to Cairo and I needed to get to the end reasonably quickly. And Nadim, like the kayak he was on, he couldn't go super fast on it. So it had slowed things down. So we agreed very amicably that I would go on ahead and then he would you know, go and finish it in, in his own time. And I was really pleased because that for me, it just meant I got to finish it. And it was only like the last four or five days kind of on my terms yeah, at my pace. And, and then we sort of got to go back to, okay, this is it. You know, now I'm coming to the end of this and just enjoying. Yes, I still had the police with me and there were more um, sort of challenges. And then it was, yeah, really looking forward to the end and then on the night for what was supposed to be the last night, so Fahed was coming through Egypt to go back to Sudan. He'd been overseas and he said, I'll come up and have dinner with you. So I was like, okay, great. It'd be so nice to see you on my last night. Awesome. And we went to this restaurant and, you know, I'd always look at, I hadn't, up until this point, so I hadn't been sick. The only thing I'd had was um, a jigger, so I had like a parasite in my toe, which had had to be dug out. But apart from that. Wait, wait, what? Which was really gross. What's a jigger? It's like a, it's like a, a big sand fly. So they, yeah. they exist in the, particularly in the, like the dry, dusty earth, and they will just dig into your skin, lay their eggs, and then they'll grow inside. And I mean, if you don't deal with it, it can get, you know, gangrene. It's a big problem for throughout certainly throughout east africa so in uganda it's a, it's a big problem it's almost like a rite of passage to get you know jiggers in the, yeah. in the toes and i got one in my one of my toes it had started to feel hot and uncomfortable at night and i'd said to Pete, i was like i said do you think that's a jigger and he's like yep oh I said, do you know what to do he said yep so i gave him um he asked for a, like a standing knife blade a cocktail stick. What else did he use? I'm not quite sure what else. And just gently had to like dig and dig and dig until this thing. And then it just erupts like this, like a big white pea kind of just came out of my foot. And then when you squished it, you could see all the eggs inside it. <laughs> it was so disgusting. So disgusting. What? <laughs> wow, that was really revolting. So, but that was it. But that was like the only thing I had. And so, so we went to this restaurant. Yeah. And, and I looked, you know, made... It's, you know, it's almost like doing this risk assessment. Like, okay, there's a lot of people coming through. Yeah. Yeah, you know, but it looks like it's fresh food. It's busy, blah, blah, blah. So ate there. 
and said goodbye to Fairhead, went to bed, woke up at one in the morning and uh-huh. tummy is not good. So we sort of start one end and then the other end and I, you know, I have one chunder and I'm like, it's okay. I've just been sick once. I can still do this. I can still do tomorrow. right? And then a few more chunders later and then I'm getting really, really sick and really lightheaded. And I'm letting Dave know what's going on. He's like, Sarah, I really think you should go to hospital and, and get a drip. And, and I was like, no, let's just see how I go. See how I go. And then I'm like, mm, okay, it's probably not that great. So then I grabbed my, my bag, my um, grab bag and all the stuff and, and the bin from the bathroom. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to be sitting like hobbled downstairs. But of course, I don't have Nadine with me anymore. No one speaks any English. So I'm literally using good old Google Translate and putting into Google Translate hospital ambulance and showing them my screen. No. And they're just looking at me like, huh? And, and at one point, it was um, the marble floor. And I just lay down on the floor. You know when you're sort of sick, just yeah. feeling that cool on the back. Like, yeah. Oh, it feels good. And then they, that really sort of got their attention, which wasn't their plan. And then they sort of called the police in from outside. And again, I'm showing them the screen. Google Translate into um, Arabic hospital. So then suddenly the ambulance arrives. Full sirens. I get into the ambulance. And they go full sirens, like going crazy going full speed like oh okay we don't we don't need the the ambulance at the hospital quite that severely anyway so i get to hospital go in there and eventually get put on a a drip like like they couldn't find my veins because everything collapsed because i was so dehydrated from having been sick so but once i was on the drip and they put the anti-nausea and antibiotics in this you you know you just instantly start to feel a lot better but it was definitely a low moment of the of the trip as i'm there like vomiting over the side of the bed and clutching my yeah. buttocks <laughs> I nearly <laughs> reckon that, that is the worst sickness in the, the oh. world like, oh, that, uh, people have asked me this they're like you should just do one or two because I know there would be several but just po- a podcast episode dedicated on these <laughs> travel stories sickness. <laughs> travel sickness stories because I have some horrible ones oh, in the bank I you know bet. what I mean but it's that when it cu- starts coming out both ends and oh. you're just like if you just think take me now just yeah, take me yeah. now I'm, 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 like, I'm, I'm good. I'm done. I, I can't. <laughs> I, I was in Iceland and it actually, I should just save that for a whole episode. The, the whole backstory is so funny. It's so funny. But I, I went to the hospital there and yeah. same thing. It was just too, no, it was going to be too expensive. But I knew I could get through it, but there was just no bathrooms anywhere. There's no bathrooms in Iceland. I was living in a car and I was like, I just said to the hospital, I was like, can I just, can I just, I just need to be in the bath, in the toilet. Can I just have a toilet? I don't need a doctor. And I'm like, the it's like, it's the most expensive oh, country on earth. Can I just save the doctor part? Just get me on the toilet. Did they let you? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here you go. And, and they let me park at the front of the van, which is like, you're not allowed to park there as well. So yeah. I could go to bed and yeah, and they bought me some oh. food and the nurses, oh. like they, they gave me some stuff and everything. And it was just like brilliant because I was freaking gone. Oh my god! I've just gotten this sick in in yeah. Iceland. I think it'll it'll pass. I'm like, is my insurance going to cover you? I don't know. It was just like, it's just yeah. it's anything happens over there. It's so expensive. Like one thing, like when you're an oh. age, you kind of know you can you can your money can go. Yeah, far. it's not going to cost you. A, a yeah, fortune. or just be like, but yeah, I, I should the it's, whole backstory to that of how I ended up in the hospital. I'd like to. Hear okay, I'll tell you after off my because okay. I'm gonna and then save them. For yeah, another yeah, episode. I'm yeah, gonna definitely. build up the courage to tell everyone that I need <laughs> other people to tell me theirs. Otherwise, the listeners are just gonna hear these horrid <laughs> stories. But it's so funny. Okay, okay, so so yeah, so you're in the 
hospital. They got you on the drip. Are you, are you getting better? Are you, like, yeah, look, it- I started to feel better quite quite quickly. I mean, I did at one point. I felt as they were trying to I'm, – I'm not too bad with needles. But, you know, I've got a crowd around me because, again, it's like, you know, you're, there's still that bit of a novelty. And although she just – just winding back time. But when I first got in there and the doctor's sort of examining me – and it's still, you know, pretty stressful being sick in a in a foreign country and you've got no idea what's going on. You don't speak the language. But at one point, this nurse came in and she just put her hand on my knee and looked at me and just smiled with kind of like kindness and compassion. And I just was like, I almost wanted to cry. I was like, just seeing that, mm. that connection, I was like, oh, thank you. And, and then, of course, I was taken on to an all-female ward. And, and then, yeah, there was a group around trying to watch, you know, the, the, trying to get the needle in and I started to feel really faint and then I'm like vomiting over the side of the bed and it's like oh and then they finally they got the needle into my arm and once the the um the the liquid started coming in I just gradually started to feel a bit better and at this point I mean I don't know how the policeman managed to get in there because it was a female ward anyway he's sitting there with me as well like <laughs> not letting me out of his sight yeah yeah like shit she's gonna die on my watch oh, don't no. die they were so sweet so then I got with the policeman got a taxi back to the hotel and yeah just sort of went went to bed and the the hotel's manager she so the hotel manager's wife actually spoke some English so she phoned me up and she said, she said, oh, the police have contacted us. They're a little bit worried because you haven't eaten today. And they're like, they want to know, would you like them to get you some food? I'm like, oh, bless. And they're also asking so nice. if you'd like um, a nurse, they'll arrange someone to come and be with you. And I'm like, oh, you really are worried I'm going to die. They were just so sweet. Yeah. It was really nice. That's, it was really, yeah, really beautiful. lovely. Yeah, it was gorgeous. And the other crazy thing is like you talk about costs. So this is the opposite to your experience when I was lying there, like before they treat me, they're like, okay, we, you need to give us, I can't remember what it was, how many Egyptian pounds, maybe it was a thousand, hundred Egyptian, hundred pounds, which was, I don't know, like 10 bucks or something like that. And I'm like, oh, they must have meant a thousand. They must have done. And I was a bit worried because I didn't have much cash on me. I needed to go to an ATM. And then they gave me change. So it worked out. The whole thing cost me two US dollars. What? <laughs> Isn't it crazy? <laughs> and I was like... You, I've yeah. got an ambulance. I've got, you know, a drip put into me. I've had antibiotics. I've had anti-nausea. And you're telling me this is mm. two US dollars? And Dave had already phoned my insurance company to give them the heads up. So the insurance company phones me. And she said, oh, look, we can get ready to, to do, um, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, Money transfer. Money, yeah, you to like put a, um, a, a request in. And she said, yeah, how much was it? I said, oh, I don't think I'm going to need to ask for any money back on this one. I said, it was two US dollars. She's like, what? <laughs> she said, imagine what that would have cost if you were in the US. Oh, and my that God. And that had happened? Yeah, like probably 140 oh, grand. <laughs> we're selling their house, right? Oh. Like kidnap ransom requests mm. would be less than that. So anyway, so I then had the next day. I was like, well, I better not push it. So I had the next day off and then... Dave suggested that just split the last day in two. Um, but getting back on the water, you know, still feeling a bit fatigued and having to sort of punch out 50Ks. I was a bit like, well, I don't know how the body's going to do. But the body just responded and... Oh, is that how many through. K, like you're kind of doing a day around... Like how many... Yeah, so it's sort of... My goal had been averaging about 50 each day. But there were days... I think the biggest I did was about 90. That is huge. And, and then 50 was yeah after being set i was pretty yeah i wasn't sure how i was a bit i was nervous starting that day going i don't know if that I can is do this. huge day in day out i told you that i 
did yeah. like 40 and had to take me pants off and <laughs> I was too, it, yeah, it hurt. We're in. But you know, so you, you, the body acclimatizes mm. and adjusts and it's just amazing what the body can adjust to. And I'd had, you know, months of it up, up yeah. to this point. And so then, but then when it came to the last day, I woke up that the last morning and I only had like 15 Ks to go. So it was a, a super, super short day, but just felt really emotionally wobbly like really wobbly to the point i'm looking in the mirror going sarah keep this together i just i don't know what it was whether you know part of the tiredness building up all the tiredness the emotional Mm. physical mental everything was just you know when you're that crawling to the finish point kind of thing and it just like suddenly that's where I was at and and I recorded a I was waiting for the police um to take me from the hotel back to the to the river and started recording this video and just got really you know I didn't cry many times on the trip but I was just like and I just saying I'm so tired I am so spent and and then they they picked me up and they took me down to the river and that moment when I saw it again and it was a beautiful day and it was just that sparkling kind of blue water and it's like nah this is good it's time to to bring this one to a finish let's do this and got on the water you know no music not listening to anything and just just as I take in every moment every stroke every spell and then I could start to smell like the salt water and then I could see wow. yeah and you got you know some of the seagulls and it's like oh my goodness this is really happening and then I could see the Mediterranean, it was it still had a headwind. Um, and the the waves were massive. So there was no way I was getting actually onto the to the Mediterranean. And so I just got to a point and obviously like the whole first woman to do a source of sea, like that had finished within that I'd given that goal up weeks into the expedition, right? That was and it was so because it was so much more than it being, you know, the mm. first woman to do this. It was it was all about the the journey and the experience and, and the adventure. The, yeah, exactly, the pure adventure. And so I just got to that point where as close as I could get and and called it and and it's just like, yeah, you know, got the GoPro out, raised the hands in the air and like finished, done it. And as soon as like pretty much as soon as I stopped, I got a call from Dave and he was like, you've done it. And it was just like the first person I wanted to speak to because we, you know, I really felt like we'd done this. I've been in touch with him every single day, at least once a day you know, mostly messaging and, um, and just had that moment of like, God, it's, it's done. And over the next sort of 24 hours or or more, there was a real mix of emotions. So there was like happiness of like, yeah, you know, I've, I've I've done it. But then there was relief, like just Mm. to have that, not having to deal with uncertainty and stresses of various kind and obstacles every single day. Um, and and then also sadness like this this had been my my whole existence for, like, for two years of yeah. planning seven months in Africa and suddenly it was over and the day that I was leaving I got up like I went back to Cairo I got a lift back to Cairo and actually when I finished because you know these things can be a little bit anticlimactic so then I was like okay now I've got to find somewhere to get off the river because it was quite built up where I finished and was arranging for a car to come and pick me up so I needed to let them know and I found a spot and some guys were having it was a cafe at the top and some guys were there and they came and helped me with my kayak and they were just doing a day trip from a the town about an hour away and they ended up being my kind of welcome 
unplanned welcome party. So they were, there was a group of them, there was about eight of them. They all worked together. And so they were asking, they spoke good English. They were asking me questions about what I was doing and what I'd done. And they got me teas and coffees and cake and taking photos and stuff. So it was just, I got to kind of share it with these people. And it would have been such a soulless experience. Otherwise, like finish sort of literally take a photo selfie doing yeah yeah finished and then get off and wait for a car and it was just it just really made it wow what an incredible thing how, how many kilometers did you end up paddling so it was 1100 k's of rafting and 3000 of kayaking wow. and various other bits of transport in between and a flight um so it was a it was a bit of a hodgepodge of things but yeah it was that a reasonable is incredible amount. but like it kind of really hit home for me just before when you went oh i was just you know, 50k a day or, and to, you know, the biggest day you did was 90, just of how um, huge that is every day, you know, and doing that for, for months, you know, yeah. like it's, it's a huge feat. Now, now that you, like, I know, you, I know you said you had those mixed of emotions, but did you, like, are you super, or were you, and are you still like just super proud of yourself? Look, at the time, I didn't have great perspective of what I'd achieved. You know, I was very conscious of the things I hadn't, the area, the bits that I'd had to skip or how things hadn't gone to plan. Mm. And 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 David very much preempted that and sort of go, you know, what you've achieved is make focus on all the things that you have done. And it really took, and this isn't a shameless plug for the book, mm. but writing the book was really good to get that perspective of what was involved and what what I'd achieved mm. um, I think it's very easy one to do these things and go okay what's next two I think you know massively generalizing and obviously it's not everyone but as women we will often downplay our achievements mm. and go, oh yeah it was nothing it was nothing it was nothing and and so then going back and, and writing the book and really thinking about what you know some of the things that I'd, I'd got from it and, and mm. what I'd learned from it was was really important, really, really important because there was just so much sort of nuggets of kind of gold in there and, and, and trying to use that to then drive the confidence, you know, get the confidence mm. out of it, you know, draw every last bit of, yeah, squeeze everything out of it to then take forward to the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, do you now like look back on, like, because I, I suppose I even have this with, with myself, you know, I'm about to, go do this stuff where I'm going to have to push myself. And I feel like, cause I haven't done it in a while. I feel kind of like weak. It's, you know, and I'm yeah. like, Oh, and I keep reminding myself, no, I've done it before. I can do it before. You know, like, do yeah. you still, do you know you have that inner strength still? Yeah. It, and I think, um, who's it? David Goggins, who, who uses the concept of the cookie jar. And the idea is all the things, all those tough things that we've done, all the really difficult things we've achieved and overcome and the struggles and, and the things that we've got to, I like the cookies and those are the things that then when you're feeling like that, God, I haven't done this for ages. And then you sort of like dip into the cookie jar and go, yeah, but I did that. Yeah. And, and certainly the Nile is that for me. And I think, you know, for everyone, for a lot of us, yes, we've been out of COVID for a little while now, but you know, it's, it's been a long time for a lot of us to have gone yeah. out and done things. And even when I went, I had um, a, my big birthday recently when I turned 50 and I took myself off to Kyrgyzstan, but it was a bit intimidating that sort of, for, you know, doing that whole going on a bit of an adventure and going trekking on my own. And it, you know, it was then drawing back to, yeah, but I've done this, yeah. you know, and when you do these, those big adventures, it kind of, you know, takes your comfort zone. And, and I said that the Nile trip was like taking it from a, I don't know, like a back garden to a national park. Like it was, it built it, you know, made it so much bigger that, that comfort zone. So the things for me that to take me out, at least, you know, initially were 
would take quite a lot. So when I came back and I think it was about nine months after finishing, I did the Murray River, um, a solo descent of the Murray. And, and I really felt I had to like, come on, Sarah, like think about this because it's still risky, but it just yeah. felt like a walk in the park in did comparison, you, which it's not. Did you do that because... Like I've had a f- like because you've done this big feat and then you did you have that like oh what now? You there was know? A, there was definitely there was definitely it was yeah what what do I do next? And I wasn't you know I think some people have said they come off expeditions and there's like the post expedition blues which I didn't get. I think I was so relieved. Mm. You know one of the parts that I missed. I was so relieved to just be able to get back to some structure and routine. And I went to the UK for a few weeks and let mum kind of, you know, put me back together and have some home-cooked food, which was so good. Yeah, I was going to say, like, were you buggered? So, like, once you got to Cairo and you met those 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 eight dudes and everything, then then what happened then? Did you have to go then back to... Then I came to- back to Cairo and then um, and then flew to the UK. And the, the morning, that when I when I saw the night, like, on the morning that I was leaving, I saw it and literally tears just streaming down my cheeks and it wasn't and I'm like where, where is this coming from but it was just this I don't know this mm. incredible outpouring of emotion um so yeah so then I flew to the UK and spent five weeks in the UK came back here for four weeks and then I flew back to Ginger in Uganda and spent a month there writing the book because I had all my diaries I'd written a diary every single day because my memory's terrible and so I used that to just sort of do a vomit on a page to just get at least like a first edit out and in an environment where so much of it happened and where i wasn't going to be distracted yeah wow what an incredible trip it was it was i look back at it and just like god that was i also look back at it and go i was nuts what was i thinking that's just naive is bliss too yeah was it who's um ross edgy said is it naive enough to start and stubborn enough to finish yeah and it was definitely one of those it was so much naivety going into that which it was good otherwise i would never have I would never have started it yeah. otherwise. No way. Oh my god! It's like I did a bit of mountain, like solo mountaineering in Iceland. Oh, wow. I just did this crossing years ago, and now that I'm actually on a legit mountaineering kind of train, I look back yeah. on that, and it's just like now I'm too scared to do what I did then. Because, really? Because now I'm like I'm learnt more, and I realise how you reckless really know what the risks are. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, whoa, that was so reckless. And I remember when I did it, I never really got it. I, I did. I was like, oh, it was more maybe my ego going, oh, cool. But my mate, um, who's got the expedition company in Iceland, said to me, he said it was like, it was like you. He said to me, it's like you did a um, surf lesson at Kuta Beach. <laughs> You know, one surf lesson and then paddled out Chopu, like the huge left-hander in Tahiti and made the drop somehow. And I was like, oh, yeah, cool, I did that. But now that I'm like that now, like when I'm trying to learn, like I'm about to go do a specialized mountaineer course, I fly out on Thursday and I'm on my way now down to the snowies to train. And even this level is like not even preparing me for what I did last time, you know? And it's kind of like when I do think about that, I was like, naive is so bliss in a way. You know what I mean? Like, is if you're if every foot that's happening in front of you, if you're ri- like doing that risk assessment on it, yeah. you can kind of pull off incredible things. It's like right now for for me, it's like it's yeah, it's like when I did that when I was done, I was too like I was so scared and shook, you know. But uh, it was just like I I, I did it because like I was assessing the risk, I suppose, yeah. every time. And now like my assessment's different. But like, yeah, you look back on it and you're like, whoa. Yeah. For, for you, so after you did this, you know, then you did the Murray River. Yeah. Then you rode across Australia. Yeah. Yeah, swap pedals for pedals. 
so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, is this just like you, you just wanted to keep pushing yourself or keep doing like? It was a, a curiosity thing. Like, I actually came up with the the cycling idea within the first month. I hadn't. I'd forgotten that I come up with it during the Nile trip until I actually so early in the Nile trip, until I went through my diaries and I'd thought about it. Then going, I'd love to do an expedition in Australia, and then I'd done the Murray one, um, partly because. You know, I, uh, yeah, I wanted to see Australia. Now I wanted to do something else, paddling. And I also, part of it was because I wanted to be taken seriously as an adventurer as well, mm. you know, to not be a one-show pony kind of thing. And and to do something solo and to see mm. how that went. And so that took a couple of months. And then, yeah, then the cycling across Australia. Yeah, it was just because I I'd, had I'd come up with it. And then we were in the middle of COVID, right? So this was um march to may 2021 last year so we were very limited i wanted i was desperate to do something and obviously you know we were all locked up mm. and i was just itching to get out and do something and i'd had coffee uh, breakfast with a friend of mine and i told her what i was tara what i was thinking of doing and she was like oh i don't mind maybe doing some of that with you and and i was like you know, like I'm yeah. really excited at the prospect that she might want to do it. And I'm like, well, look, you go away and think about it. I don't want to put pressure on you because, you know, I know it's going to get really, any of these things, it's going to get shit. And I don't want you to turn around and blame me and go, you made me do this. So she went away and thought about it. I was like, yeah, you know, I'd really like to do this. So that's when, so we decided, yeah, we'd do it together. And we were, the first date we had to postpone because, because we were trying to get into WA, obviously, which is really mm. difficult during, during COVID. By some miracle, the second time we'd, we'd have booked the flights for March. And then I don't know how long it was open, the border was open for, but it was must have literally been for a few weeks. And we were able to fly into WA and not quarantine. Yeah. So yeah. it was just like meant to be. And then we made our way up to, to Steep Point, the most westerly point, and, and began that that adventure. Oh, wicked. Uh, I was, um, I, you know, I just, I, I love women... It, that adventure it just i find it super inspiring and i and i know some really cool girls that just send it and but then sometimes i'll say like something to someone and they'll say oh yeah but like you know guys can do that it's just not safe for women or whatever and then i and i kind of i suppose um i i can't relate or it's harder for me to relate but then i i know girls that are doing it yeah. and i'm like oh so it's just like what advice do you have for for the women that do say that they go oh you know because obviously that is a risk you know that there's a higher risk there i know i remember when tara i asked tara Rhodes when she after she walked around australia you know what about like you know weird truckies or anything and she was kind of like oh it was all kind of fine because she was out there doing something and i don't know but you know there's always that option of like there's always that um risk i suppose but like how do you manage that? Or like, what would you say to those younger women? Is it just like, what, what advice do you have for, for young girls that have that fear that, or, or yeah, yeah, that have that fear? I mean, potentially then it's finding people to go with you where that you are going to feel safe. But, you know, I don't want to, I wouldn't want to encourage people to be, you know, reckless and, and go off and, and let's say do things on their own because things can happen. But it's just, you do everything you can to be, smart and informed and you know you're not going to go and I don't know say when I was doing the Murray River I would actually try and camp away from people not mm. where people you know because you get all the, the sandy banks along there and, and you might get a few people then I was the, doing it over the holidays so there were a reasonable amount of people and I felt way safer when I was just on my own 
than if I was with a few people who were there who I could then hear them getting on it and getting beard up. And then I'm like, then I feel really uncomfortable and vulnerable. Mm. So it's just learning to be smart. And I, you know, done my crap I got not that that's necessarily going to to save me but just always been being straight trying to be straight smart about it but not letting it hold me back and and do the do these these things and just it's when you look at all these things I've had that like the people around me as well like the teams through through Africa and Tara with me doing doing that in um in the psych ride and so we wouldn't we wouldn't camp like right next to the road where it's really clear that there's like mm. two two women there you know you can you just a bit further away so you're just less obvious yeah and, so and just being being smart about it i mean but i mean women are you know you're dealing with risk you go to a bar like you know you have to you're gonna get your drink spiked like there's yeah. there's risks everywhere yeah i remember when we were in south america years ago and uh we had a like you, you just had to be careful like that. And we had, you know, our girlfriends with us and some other girlfriends and stuff. And um, remember there's one, one girl, it was my mate's girlfriend. She just always wanted to go off by herself or like wanted to just do her own thing. And it was kind of, I got it, but it was just so, it not only did it put all us on edge, it was mm-hmm. putting us in dangerous situations because it was all going down streets where I wouldn't feel comfortable as a, as a male walking or just a white dude. Yeah. You just don't, let, yeah. let alone a blonde blue-eyed woman you know like and so she had this knack where she was like no i'm doing it anyway and then we'll have to like try and like look after her or whatever and it was getting us into trouble getting us into and it was just that's the perfect thing there it's like having your wits about you you're not going to be reckless you're not going to go against local advice like when i was in south africa and and yeah you know i I went out there but it's at the hostel i'd be like okay what's safe what's not and they're like if you stay on this strip you'll be fine get a taxi there get a taxi back don't go off. And, mm. and they'd had like one, they said, look, we had uh, an NY cop, new NYPD um, guy, and he hadn't listened and he'd gone off into one of the side rides and been mugged. And it's just like, just yeah. follow the advice yeah, you know, and find out what that is. If you don't know a place that you're going to Mexico like that, either talk to people who've been there or look at the mm. travel advice and just be be smart. But, you know, at the same time, sometimes the, the, the travel advice can it's generally very conservative yeah and 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 a bit catastrophizing at times so you certainly yeah. even though when i went to sedan it was i think it was red at the time and it was but i was, was you know obviously fine, i had yeah. a support team there making sure the places i went to were okay yeah. and local people with me so it's just but you are so right there's ways to to manage that yeah uh, yeah it's like i've done f- four trips in mexico and it's always been fine but we did get yeah. robbed you know, and yeah. when we got robbed is when we fully let, let our guard down and it was just, it was just dumb what we did. But then like I drove the West Coast to Mex sleeping on the beach and we're fine, yeah. you know, it's just, but then you, you go to Mexico City or something and it's fine, but you don't go to this area, you don't yeah. do that. or you, It's, yeah, it's just managing that. And then I've had a few girlfriends travel the West Coast of uh, Mexico too, camping. I had a friend, her and her boyfriend, they hitch, were hitchhiking sailing getting on boats oh, and then wow. chucking their stuff overboard and swimming, you know, with these dry bags to camp and like camping and hitching or trying to hitch on yeah, another boat. Yeah. And they, yeah, just okay. really cool stuff, you know, as people, yeah, it's, it's, um, the world's safer than, than you think. Yeah. 
um, when you when you do have your wits about you and, and you're being smart, but it's also like yeah, there's those situations like Listen. you know with those cops and everything that that come and and you've got to be yeah. smart and and look at it and and then there is the nightmares that that do Things happen. Do happen. But it's just like I just I just hate seeing people hold back their dreams or their like yeah. the things they really want to do out of like rare fear or fear that is of a risk that can be managed yes or like that can be managed to a point where it becomes pretty low risk yeah. you know like it's like oh yeah so i yeah, do no, get it it's just yeah i'd say to them yeah find find ways that you can bring it down to within your your risk mm. appetite but try not to let it hold you back too much yeah uh, i think that's a great message especially for for young girls that yeah. they can go out there they can be that adventurer exactly. they can yeah they can jump on a bike and ride across That's australia true. if they want do it yeah just do it if you can dream it you can do it you know life's life short lead big full bold exciting exciting lives yeah no i'm inspired now <laughs> what and do you have anything in the pipeline coming up next <gasps> i have so many things i want to do i kind of need a lottery win um <laughs> And possibly a new body as well, because the body's gonna. Like, I'm gonna. Like, the body's gonna be packing it in before before the mind and the ideas is. So what I want to do, I really want to do a source to see on each continent. Um, no, I'm not committing to doing the longest river on each continent, but I'd like to do a source, source to, to see. see. So I want to do next year is to do the Missouri Mississippi. So that will be about six thousand k's through through the US. Um, so that's wow. the next one I want to do, which is really exciting. So I'm just kind of now. You know, I've started reaching out to people. There's a great group on Facebook, the Missouri Paddlers. So I've got one of the guys there. Um, Norman has been giving me some lots of good advice and is sending me a book all about it. So it's beginning to to pull that one together, which is really exciting. Six, another 6,000K. So that will be the longest one I've done by a long shot. So I'm wow. a little bit like, oh, this is going to be hard. Like I know how hard it was doing the Murray on my own and to so doing this. And, there, you know, there's – Okay, you haven't got heroes and crocs, but there's a lot of challenges with that with that mm. river. Um, we're going across big lakes, all sorts of things. So, so yeah, so that's really exciting. And then yeah, I want to do as I say, a source of sea on each, con each continent, possibly the Amazon. I really want to do an ocean row. I know you chatted to an ocean row recently. I really want to do. It scares the crap out of me. Scares yeah. the crap out of me, but I do like the idea of doing an ocean row. I know. That also you with the, this dot just paddle like you bobbing in the middle so of the ocean. Cool. It's like your exit points are not good, you know. For yeah. someone who's like, just like, oh, it's a little bit scary, and I'm like, I'm scared of big, really big surf. So it's like the thought of people, you know, when they capsize and stuff like that. But I don't know. Maybe I do that with with someone. Um, mm. That's going to take a little while to pull together and. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Here's an idea for you. I yeah. don't know, but I've I've heard I've been told that Canada is the only continent that you can paddle completely across. Oh yeah, yeah. There's yeah. only like one part I think because you can pack raft it. Yeah. There's a couple of parts where you've got to like get up and like walk or whatever. But one of my I think it was like third or fourth episode that came out was with my mate who's a um a paddler in in Canada, and yeah. um. He was just talking about some of the trips he had done up in Alaska and everything. Yeah. And but I, I just remember him mentioning that that mm -hmm. it's a big thing in Canada. It's actually one of the continents that you can you go. You can up. actually go across. Yeah. But then you got bears. Cougars. Bears. Yeah. <laughs> and it's cold. I'm really not good with cold. Although yeah. saying that I would I, mean, I know you're doing probably like mountain climbing. I'd really like to do a a climb like um Mirror Peak, you know, which is a 
It's still a high altitude, so it's 6,000, but it's a non-technical climb. Where is it? Merit, that's in Nepal. And then you've got Lenin uh, Peak in Kyrgyzstan, which is 7,000. And that's pretty much non-technical from what I understand. Wow. So I'd like to do one of those. I just, mm. I'm, not, I'm shit with heights. Well, and and I'm not great with the cold, so I don't I don't see myself doing you know like an an yeah. Everest or something like that. Yeah, um, get... and the real technical climbing, but I would like to do yeah. one of those peaks, sort of you know around that six thousand or so mark. Yeah, I might add one of them to my bucket list because I like I I told you like I really want to do the technical stuff, but yeah. I also just like a great long hike and i like the challenges that come with that and the camping Mm. and the and i I like that you can go at different paces or you push yourself what what i the the thing about the high altitude with the weather and everything it's just like have you have you put your body in high altitude before i've done um so recently when i was in kogosan it wasn't super high that was only three and a half thousand that's starting to get there to feel it where you feel the difference you feel the physically harder Mm. you know definitely out of breath more but that was it and when i did i did a trip um, i did annapurna base camp oh yeah i did annapurna base camp so that was four thousand and when on that trip also did an overland trip into um tibet and that was going over some passes at five thousand that was probably when i started to to feel it just that bit of some nausea and a bit Mm. headachey tiny bit headachey um, but that was that was it. Whereas the guys on that trip, the guys seemed to suffer f- way more from the altitude than yeah. the than the women did. But I don't know if that was just might be the oxygen group. going around, or just um, also the energy in the muscles. I don't know. Maybe yeah. more oxygen for the muscles. Yeah, yeah. I, that's one thing I've noticed lately too. My body type's actually pretty good for this kind of yeah. stuff for long endurance. Just yeah, as soon as you got if you got two big muscles in in certain areas too like it's just that the body uses too much energy for it yeah and you're okay with altitude well i'm not sure now because i was at altitude like i've been sick in bed like pretty badly with altitude sickness before when i was in bolivia that was 5700 and that was with not having the fitness or knowing to manage it yeah and then I'm pretty interested to see how I go now with the actual like um, planning and, and preparing and, and knowledge mm. kind of thing. So I really want to know how I go. But it's just like yeah. it's just like one of those things. We have our things. You just want to – you just – for me, and it might be the same as you, you just want to experience, experience it. it. Exactly. Yeah. It's, wanna... sen- it's like sen- slight sensation-seeking-ish, but more than, you know, yeah. more than that. And it's like just that curiosity. I want to – what is that like? Yeah. Am I going to be able to do it? I don't know. That's yeah. exciting. And what what's cool about you know people like you and 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 me I suppose and and a lot of people that are listening to this and it's why they're listening to it is because the difference is, you know, with us is like you have the dream but you have the um desire to go for it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's like yeah you want that sensation but instead of just the wonder you there's another thing that clicks inside you that goes oh that it's more knowing that you can. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or, or, or going for it. And yeah. I think that's what's so, so cool. And that's the, the most beautiful thing about sharing these stories. It's telling other people, and especially for you, you're, it's, it's a huge role that you can play for young women to say, hey, like you can, you can go out, you can do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? You can make your desires come true, you know, like you can, you can push yourself and, and you can do these incredible things. Absolutely. And, and like you, you know, said at the start, when you've got that excitement and passion around it, like people will come and they want to help you. If they can see mm. you really want to, 
they're going to help you even if you don't know how you'll you'll find a way and people will want to help you get there yeah. and whether that's sponsors coming on board and people giving you advice whatever it is you you know you'll you'll find mm. a way when you really want to do yeah. something or just your and that's authentically like actually you know going for it like you actually go for something like you've got to like kind of when you said that I pictured someone sitting there and just thinking everyone's going to do it for them it's like no like when you know fully that. just go like yeah I'm doing this I'm going for it you just watch your community yeah. the people around you will go huh oh, you're actually right. doing it okay. yeah so right. and then they'll start helping you yeah. it's just it's you've got to take action and just start you know that whole thing the way will appear yeah. Just take one step in front of another and you don't need to be able to see, who is it? was it Martin Luther? Oh, it's going to be terrible that I can't attribute the quote, but you don't need to see the whole staircase to be able to take the next step. Yes, yes, exactly. I love the T.E. Lawrence quote. It's one of my, my, for years, one of been my favorite for years. It's um, dreamers of the day dangerous men because dreamers of the night wake up to find it was vanity but the, but the, yeah but the dreamers of the day will go out and make their dreams happen yeah it's something yeah, like yeah, that yeah, yeah. No, but it's just quite, like i know i saw it the other day and yeah. it's yeah but it's like were, you know what i mean and i often think it's like wow you know men and women you yeah. know like we're dangerous men and women because we'll, we'll go out and do it it's just, just like it. yeah just give it a shot yeah and this is the thing too you know it's just like life is short you know what I mean? Life is short and like, yeah. think about it, like, I turn, I turn 36, you know what I mean? Like you've just had your 50th, you know, yeah. you don't, and you, and you don't look at it and I, I'm, I don't think, <laughs> I'm claiming it right now, I don't look 36, <laughs> no, I'm claiming absolutely it. <laughs> but you know what I mean? I sit there and, and it, my parents always said this to me, they go, oh, you know, life goes like that and I'm like. Ah, oh, whatever. And now I'm like 36. I'm like, are you kidding me? Oh my God. Where did, and I'm like, I still want to do this, this and this and this. Yeah. And like, it's like, wow, it, it does go so fast. And then, you know, like my parents, this is, you know, each to their own, but the, you know, they, they always dreamed of traveling and then they retired and now they're like, they go and travel, but they're like too tired to do that hike or to do this yeah. or that. They, you know, they just, it's just, yeah. And it's just like, while I'm capable and my yeah, well, I'm capable and I want to stand on something high to look at a view. It's just like, I'm going to do, do it. Do yeah, it. Yeah, I see that's it. You see so many people go, oh, well, you know, I need to work. I need to do this. And, and then I'll I'll do it when I retire. And then you retire and you don't have the same drive. And it's like, mm. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's obviously it's different for everyone. But for me, it's life's about the experiences and, and, and not so much the things that we accumulate. Mm. And, and that's what I want to keep going doing. And, and yeah, turning 50 was pretty confronting just because that – you know, your mortality is getting a lot more yeah. real and and it's just, I, yeah, I'm just going, you know, I want to do all these adventures and, and do yeah. things and, you know, and at the same time try and take, as it were, more people with me and encouraging more, particularly women, to go out and lead those big four lives and and to follow those those dreams and try and encourage and, and help give those, mm. the, you know, the the mindset tools and the assistance and just the giving them the belief yeah you can do it you yeah. absolutely can do it and just go out and try new things open new doors because you never know where things will take you you know if you've always thought about oh i kind of like have a go at at white water kayak just go and go out of penrith and do it you know if you're living around here just just because yeah. you just you never know and, and don't die wandering because yeah, yeah do it while, while you can you well, never know well, sarah you're an absolute <laughs> inspiration so and we've got your your book here and and you know even though we've touched on the story today it has nothing 
has nothing to the actual adventure that's inside this book, Paddle the Nile. Like I said, I started reading it and I'm just stoked because I'm, I've just started traveling. I'm doing this trip and, and I needed a book and it's, you know, I'm um, second chapter in and I'm, and I'm super inspired. So if anyone wants to, um, you know, follow Sarah's story and, you know, Christmas is coming up. If, if you've got th things like this with me where it hits home is that I've got little, and I've talked about them before in the podcast, little nieces and little cousins. And I've got um, like my niece, she's just turned 15. And then I've got like my little cousins and everything. And I'm watching all these like young women come into, into um, womanhood and what's inspiring them is not necessarily what I wish was inspiring them. You know, I see them get inspired by like Instagram and, and, and stuff. And, and it's super important for me. And you said it at the start of this and you said it to me, you can't be what you can't see. So anyone listening here, if you, if you've got someone like that in your life, especially those, those young um, minds that are like easily influenced. I reckon this would be a great book to hand them. It's like, you're literally handing you, look what this woman did. She's gone and <laughs> Go paddled the stuff. Nile. This book's filled with adventure. And I'm saying that without trying to sell it. I'm saying that with like, <laughs> yeah. you know, with, with genuine, like, you know, with being genuine there. But how, how do we get? So yeah. it's on Amazon. So you can get it in print format and um, Kindle e ebook format on, on Amazon or you can buy it directly from me too. So just, just get in touch with my websites, sarahjdavis.com. So or, Sarah J. Yep, sarahjdavis.com or on, I'm on Instagram as Sarah Paddles, all one word. Um, send me a DM and we can we can yeah. sort it out. And I'd, I'd heard lots about you before this um <laughs> before this episode so it was so good to meet you oh, and you too. Bef before we go i want to tell everyone that's like sitting there in their car right now that's just listening to this um incredible woman tell her adventure tales that she just you know really really she just really went for it i dare you to to think about like what you really want to do and think about the things that are holding you back and i dare you to go and write that list of step by step how to get there you know and it might just be starting with that first step like we just st said but it's just like you're not gonna regret it no you know you're gonna regret not doing it you're gonna regret not doing it and just like yeah so go i dare you i dare you <laughs> i love that <laughs> do it don't make me peer pressure you guys anymore just go do it yeah all right sarah thank you so much for coming on diaries of the wild ones oh, thank you aaron i really appreciate it it's been really good chatting yeah it's really been cool great. it's been fun and i'm yeah. actually spewing because once i say goodbye then i'm gonna have to tell you my story of what happened in iceland <laughs> i don't it. want to <laughs> And now all your listeners are going to want to hear oh, it okay. too. You're going to have to do that. If you guys want to hear more toilet stories, let me know and I'll, I'll give you an episode that you that I won't want you to tell your you mum about. You can't unhear. All right, guys. Sarah, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Now, guys, if you like this episode, feel free to share it for me. Take a screenshot, put it on your social media stories, tell your mate, tell your mum. Thanks heaps for listening, guys. I'll see you guys next time.